Looking for ways to run the most successful global single-family office? Discover the best practices and industry secrets that will enable your SFO to become innovative, resilient, and successful through the Angelo Robles Podcast with your host, Angelo Robles. Welcome, everyone. I'm Angelo Robles, the founder and CEO at Family Office Association and the host of the Angelo Robles Podcast. Today, we're going to discuss AI. Is this the beginning of the end? Oh, I hate to be dramatic, but we're going to have a really deep, probably near two-hour discussion today, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. Our special guest is Dr. Craig Kaplan, the CEO and founder of IQ Company, a consulting company focused on artificial general intelligence. He also produces educational videos. I know, I've watched several of them via IQ's video arm called IQ Studios. He is also the founder and former CEO of Predict Wall Street, a data gathering company that polled millions of retail investors to gather their opinions about the stock market. In other words, I probably want to go contrarian to what they're thinking, but maybe not. You may have a chance to catch up on that. Dr. Kaplan has many years of experience in the fields of collective intelligence, artificial intelligence, and quantitative modeling. He has also served as CEO of various companies, including a hedge fund. I'm in Greenwich. That's my backyard. That has ranked in the top 10 in equity market neutral strategies in 2018. Dr. Kaplan's academic career includes visiting assistant professorship in computer sciences at University of California. He earned his MS and PhD degrees at Carnegie Mellon University, where he also co-authored research with Nobel Prize winning economist. We all know who he is. That would be Herbert Simon. Dr. Kaplan has authored and co-authored more than 40 publications, including a book and 18 patents in software and the internet fields. Dr. Kaplan, Craig, welcome to the show. Angelo, terrific to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Let's get to it. More than any other company, OpenAI, we all have heard of ChatGPT, has been at the forefront of recent AI breakthroughs. OpenAI provides foundational models that could serve as infrastructure powering a new generation of consumer enterprise AI applications. Maybe, like Amazon's AWS capitalized the shift in the cloud. Is this hype or not? Well, uh, gauging by popular reaction, there's a lot there. Uh, I have been very surprised at in just a couple of months. Uh, ChatGPT was released November 30th, and in about two months, it has sort of migrated from a narrow little area that mainly AI researchers were concerned with to exploding onto uh, you know the mainstream stage. It, there's CNN and NBC and all these companies with articles, teachers are concerned about students using it. So I think there's really something going on here. And uh, even though like many things, it's been sort of in the works for a number of years, when it finally uh, bursts into awareness, uh, there, there's a big impact. So that's what's going on there. Uh, we can talk a lot more about it, I'm sure. I and we will. It's overhyped. Yeah, I think there's a there's something real there. 
Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned with teachers. I have a son who's a sophomore. He's 19 at a private school college here in Connecticut. And yeah, you're already seeing like every student knows what it is. Practically, they're all using it. I understand the concerns that professors will have. So what you're starting to see them do already coming back from the winter break is do more like ad hoc on the spot assignments as opposed to anything where you could take back and have chat GPT effectively do all the work. Well, we're going to do a deep dive into all of this. I suppose my next question is going to be many people thought that we were years away from AI being impactful on the creative side. We do know it's impactful from other perspectives and even that's increasing rapidly. But ChatGPT has changed on the creative side. On a negative note, oh, why don't we get right to it? We know that white collar jobs are threatened. We used to only think that blue collar through robotics. I was totally wrong. If anything, certain blue collar professions are probably more protected than many white collar professions. But now creative jobs with a snap of a finger like ChatGPT, and we'll talk about some other platforms out there, even creatives are, things are happening quicker than maybe we would all like. I think that's right. Uh, many AI researchers, myself included, uh, we're a little bit surprised at how quickly uh, some of the creative jobs have been taken over by AI. The classic uh, story with AI is that it has always been very good at very narrow domains, chess or go, and getting it to even drive a car, which is a narrow domain, was a real struggle. Uh, we're still not quite there. Uh, but I think a lot of people thought they would be safe with the uh, ability to think and uh, be creative. And instead, what's happened is uh, some of those jobs uh, are definitely going to be threatened. I think the good news here is uh, somebody still needs to set the agenda. And there's a great uh, market for editors because chat GTP may be able to come up with lots of text, but it really doesn't know what it's saying. Uh, underneath the covers, it's all statistics and mathematics. And uh, it doesn't know the difference between a bunny and a widget, uh, other than that bunnies tend to be statistically associated with other words and widgets are associated with a different set of words. So um, I think you're right. It's faster than people expect it. Uh, it's also true that, for example, with Amazon and the warehouses, the thing they've had the most difficulty automating and putting AI to work on is the actual grasping of the objects and packing them in boxes. Somehow that fine-tuned manipulation that humans take for granted with our hands is very difficult uh, for robotics and artificial intelligence. Deciding what's the most efficient path to go through the warehouse and grab the things to put in the box, that's easy for AI. Uh, we're going to get a little bit into Boston dynamics and certain of these things are changing. But again, this is going to be a long interview. We're going to dive a little deeper into the employment issues and the impact on effectively society shortly. But I did want to bring that up. And by the way, for those who are under a rock and not familiar, shame on you, by the way. I mean, really, I'm an old man and I know you got to know what chat GPT is. You got to know you got to go on it. You got to use it. Like, for instance, I'm a big music fan and I'm a poet, uh, a bad one, but I try. So I typed in, write me a poem about my fellow Westonite here in Connecticut, Keith Richards at the Rolling Stones. And in seconds, it pumped out 
a rather creative poem that like, oh my God, like this was, and, and we're early stage in this. It was amazing. And I put in things relative to sports, to Super Bowl and poems and philosophy. And it, I, I, I mean, I was kind of stunned. Yeah, it's very impressive. And we are early stage, kind of behind the scenes. So we're chat GPT-3, the three in the name refers to the third generation. So there was an original GPT, a GPT-1 and 2, uh, which were not quite as advanced. And what's happened is with each generation, they train it on more and more information. The current one, ChatGTP3, is trained on 45 terabytes, which is essentially three Library of Congress's worth of info. So that's that what they found with these large language models, which is what ChatGPT is, is that the more data that you can bring to bear, uh, the more intelligent the behavior you're going to get out the other end. And we kind of crossed a threshold there. Each generation seems to go up by around a factor of 10 in terms of the number of parameters it has in it and the amount of info that it can handle. So they're working on chat GPT-4, which has not yet been released as far as I know, but any day now. And uh, there's a lot of speculation that that will be uh, substantially better than what we're seeing right now. I mean... <laughs> I guess officially AI kind of took off in 1956 and we'll get into the history, which I think is fascinating because there actually is someone, Ada Lovelace, as she's known as in the 1800s, but we'll get into that shortly. But my big point is there had been periods where let's even say since 56 where AI didn't appear to be advancing that much. I don't know, maybe parts of the 70s or 80s, we appear to be at an infliction now. Is this kind of like a hockey stick where it's been a little like this and now we're starting to see that? Does it go like that? I doubt it. Or does it go like that? I think that's probably more realistic. What do you think? Uh, I think there is definitely a hockey stick going on. And it's interesting, uh, just like people talk about in crypto, the crypto winter, right? Uh, and then you make it through and it comes out the other side. There was a similar thing in artificial intelligence uh, right after the 80s. So I did my work at Carnegie Mellon in the mid 80s. Uh, and that was right when machine learning was taking off. So if I can give you maybe take 60 seconds to give sketch a quick uh, outline of how this field went. So in the 50s, they named the field at Dartmouth 1956. In those days, so the field was named artificial intelligence. In those days, all the AI programs were programmed by humans. You put in a bunch of rules. If this, then do that. And that's how all the systems worked. By the time we got to the 80s, people were really intrigued with machine learning. Why should we program the computer to be smart? Why not turn the computer loose and let it teach itself? Mm -hmm. And so I was lucky enough to be in some of those pioneering research groups that were doing the very first neural networks, um, where you basically train it up like the brain learns, and it adjusts the weights between the neurons, and it, it teaches itself. The problem was, which nobody really quite understood at the time, computers were just too slow. So what happened between the 80s and the 90s was kind of the AI winter, where everyone got all excited. In the 50s, they were like, we're going to have chat GPT equivalent type stuff in 50 right. years, right? And uh, that's my advisor, uh, you know, Herb Simon, he, that was his prediction. And he was off by a, you know, a couple decades because there were some difficulties. Uh, and then the machine learning guys thought, oh, this is great. Once they teach themselves, that'll be it. Again, in the 90s, kind of had a slowdown, a winter. 
But then what happened was every year, Moore's law has been kicking in, right? Computing power is doubling every 18 months. And so the same algorithms that were there in the, the 80s, we had self-driving cars, believe it or not, at Carnegie Mellon in the 1980s. I used to go running in the park across from the uh, building, and you'd see this giant van. It was moving about two inches an hour, and it was crammed full of you know IBM PCs and video cameras, and it would see a leaf, and then it would stop, and it would wait for 10 minutes to figure out that's a leaf, and then it could go another two inches. That was the computing power. You could take that same van today with the same algorithms, don't even need to improve it that much, uh, but just the faster computers, and that thing can whiz along at 30 miles an hour. So computing power increasing enabled uh, machine learning to work, and that just kept doubling and doubling, and then finally you get into the you know, last five, 10 years, and it's really taken off. So I think you're right. I think it is going to be more of a hockey stick from here, uh, although there are some things that could limit it. We may run out of data. I mean, you talk to the guys at OpenAI and they mentioned that as a concern. They're already using a huge amount of data to train the systems. In order to get smarter systems, you need more data, more computing power, better algorithms. It's those three things. And they're already using a lot of the available data. So there's some challenges, but I think we're well on our way to a whole new world here. When we get into from a societal perspective, I'm going to make a, a shocking statement to the audience and comment on it. And we'll kind of come back deeper to it a little bit later. We'll hit a point, probably somewhere in the coming years, I don't know, five to 20, where you could take the smartest person on earth, whatever, they have an IQ of 190. And what we're talking about in artificial intelligence may literally, I want this to sink in maybe it's a grandiose statement, may literally be a trillion times smarter. Yeah, I, I don't think you're exaggerating there. And okay. But very few people either see it, most people don't see it. And I think some of the people that see it maybe are a little threatened by that. They don't want to mention it. Maybe my funding dries up. Maybe regulation comes in. But there's some real dangers there. Uh, I am absolutely convinced, having been in this field for several decades, that artificial intelligence will become smarter than the humans. It's inevitable. There, I, I see no way that that cannot happen. It, it's not. It sounds crazy because it's so different than what we're used to. But if you think about it, a human has a brain. It's about the size of a Nerf football, and it's not getting any bigger. There is no limit on the size of an AI's brain. You could have one the size of this room, the size of the building, the size of a city. And that's not even counting the fact that the processing power is already getting faster and faster. Soon will exceed the processing power of the human brain. And you can network them together. And it never sleeps and it never eats. And, and it can train itself by working, you know, having conversations with itself. At some point, the humans no longer are a great source of information. The source of information is other AIs. And it just does that 24-7 while us poor humans have to sleep and eat and all the rest. And once it gets to a certain level, you press a button, you clone it. You've got another one. You don't have to wait a whole lifetime for a human to sort of train up their knowledge. There's a lot of factors that, uh, in my mind, make it essentially inevitable that that will happen. And that is the big opportunity, but also the big danger that I think a lot of people are 
not quite aware of. They're just beginning to even understand what AI is with ChatGTP. Before that, it's like, oh yeah, that's computer science. Now it's like, no, this changes everything for me. Oh, we're going to get into all of that, Craig. We're also going to get into how it impacts finance, how is a high net worth investor or family office. This is going to be specifically impactful to you. I have a 19-year-old. Many of you have young ones below 25. What are they going to do? What's going to be a profession for them? We're going to get into that. And at the end, we're even going to get into a little bit of personal stuff like the dynamics of AI, even from a, a, human, a human and a sexual perspective. So this will be a interesting conversation that's going to get actually rather deep. I'm not quite finished on chat GPT yet. You have to pick one or the other. Don't give me a politically correct in between. Is chat GPT the next kind of 90s Netscape or the next, and I know it's kind of owned by Microsoft, but the next trillion dollar idea or company? Okay. I won't, I'll try my best not to waffle on this, <clears throat> but let me just say this. Chat GPT is one example of a class of systems. The class of systems is called large language models. We're all familiar with Chat GPT because OpenAI was relatively aggressive in putting it out to the public. Uh, DeepMind, owned by Google, mm -hmm. uh, projects at Microsoft, projects at Apple, projects at Amazon, they all have their own large language models. So even though ChatGPT is what we focus on because that's the one that we've been allowed to use, there's other ones that are potentially as good or even better. Uh, will large language models, so I'll answer your question this way, will large language models be the next trillion dollar opportunity? Yes, unequivocal, unequivocal yes. But will it be ChatGPT versus one of the others? How that plays out, that I think remains to be seen. We've just seen the opening salvo here from one company. Related to that, what do you think? Well, we know what Microsoft's doing. <laughs> They're buying. But what do you think Apple, Amazon, maybe more specifically Alphabet slash Google, Facebook? I mean, they, they're probably a little afraid about, wow, this really took off faster than we thought. It's going to threaten our existing model. But we have some of this in-house already. And we're kind of bigger platforms, although arguably now with the Microsoft relationship, that's debatable. Uh, will there be just one winner or could there be multiple? It's a good question. In the short run, I think almost certainly there will be multiple. Uh, and I think what's going on, I'm speculating because I haven't had these conversations, what's going on in Google or uh, Apple, we we know, for example, Amazon, you have Alexa, that's based on a large language model. Mm -hmm. Apple has Siri, that's based on a large language model. They have future generations of those, certainly in research. And I think when somebody comes out with something like ChatGPT that captures the popular imagination and everybody starts using it, I think it puts a lot of pressure on these other companies to release what they have. For example, DeepMind, I really admire the CEO there, Demis Hassabis. I think he's fantastic. Um, and one of the things I admire about him is even though they've made fantastic strides at DeepMind, protein folding, all kinds of things that can revolutionize healthcare, he is, of the folks that I know that are at that level, uh, 
relatively cautious. He says, look, you know, this is different than other technologies. The normal Silicon Valley method of let's move fast and break things is not what we should use with AI. It's too dangerous. So he's been very responsible. For all I know, DeepMind has something better than ChatGPT, but he's tried to be a little more cautious and careful about it. I think for better or worse, what happens when OpenAI releases, releases ChatGTP is it puts the pressure on the other guys to start releasing what they have. And so I would be surprised if in the next year, at least, we don't see competitors, competitive products coming from these other large companies. Uh, given you have a background in finance, I'm going to ask you a little bit of an unfair question. You could elect to give a very political answer to this one question only. Uh, we know Microsoft's involvement in the community and ChatGPT. We mentioned DeepMind and Google, Facebook. Uh, the tech companies got crushed last year. It's been a terrible investment. But obviously, technology is not going to go away. This will probably be a wind behind its sails. Others have variations of this already. What I'm basically trying to say, if you're a long-term perspective investor, would you still say, say that investing in the Microsofts, the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Apples, the, the Alphabets, it, it's probably not the worst investment in the world. Will one or two of them drop off the top 10? Probably. And there'll probably be others, maybe in biotech, that will replace it. But broadly speaking, do you think that investments in companies like that are likely still long-term strategic and logical? Yes. I mean, without giving investment advice, I'll just throw that out. I mean, I'm definitely overweight tech. Uh, the fact that the valuations got crushed to me was buying opportunity. But my time horizon is fairly long. Uh, I'm not trying to time things over the next year or two. I'm looking more at the, you know, three is the short end, five I'm more comfortable with, and 10 I'm very comfortable with. I think all of those companies that you mentioned have good chances and they all have a horse or multiple horses in this race. The one you didn't mention was NVIDIA, which <laughs> makes the, the chips. I mean, look, uh, AI is powered by supercomputing. It's ex incredibly um, expensive uh, in terms of computational power to train these models. You need the very best chips, and the company that's ahead of everybody on those high-end chips that are used to train AI is NVIDIA. Uh, and I've been following Jensen Wang, the CEO, for many years. I just have the highest respect for him. He was on AI. So it's one thing. Chad and for those that aren't familiar, yeah. Craig, where do the vast majority of these chips come from? What country? So they're designed here in the U.S., but they're manufactured almost all of them. The vast majority is in uh, Taiwan, TSMC, yes, right? It's exactly. manufacturing NVIDIA and everybody, which is why with the CHIPS Act and everything, Biden's now trying to bring it in and has brought it into Arizona where they're going to open a new fab. Intel's investing in new fabs. I mean, it's very strategic. There's a whole, whole dimension we could talk about with chip wars and so forth. But uh, yeah, there's a little bit in Korea. Samsung makes some chips too, but it's so really those two places. That's it. And that's why Taiwan, for those who don't know, which I'm sure is no one, why it is so interesting, potentially how that's evolving and what's going on. I didn't know that what you mentioned uh, about Biden. That's a good move. I'm going to try to be as politically correct as I could be here. But my audience knows me. You want me to be true to me. Finally, he did something good. My God. But yes, that would be good. Let's push that along. Okay, now it's going to get me a lot of hate emails and texts. Sorry. Uh, 
I don't like to spend a lot of time, no offense, Craig, even when I have whatever Ray Dalio on, on backgrounds, because we could always go online and look that up. But this is such a unique topic, although I hinted at it when I briefly read your bio to begin. Give our audience maybe a little bit of an understanding as to why you chose to be active in AI going back to your school days, of course, just a couple of years ago, and maybe a little bit from a career perspective. So I think I was always interested in intelligent systems, the human mind uh, being the foremost intelligent system, and then uh, what can you do with computers to make them intelligent? So that was from a pretty young age, my college days. I took an undergraduate course in neuroscience, and I was just fascinated. You had all these neurons. Some of them excite other neurons. Some of them inhibit that sort of thing. And so when I decided to go to grad school, I just kind of applied to a bunch of places, looked around. At that time, Japan. I don't know if folks remember was doing, this is in the early 80s, the fifth generation project. They were doing AI. It was when AI was rolling and it hadn't hit the winter yet. And everyone was worried that Japan would be the country that would overtake the US and there were all these articles. So I was reading these and they kept mentioning Herbert Simon over at Carnegie Mellon. So I thought I need to go over there. And uh, when I got in, um, I did get a chance to work with him and we co-authored research together. And he had invented what impressed me was way back at the very beginning, 1956. Okay, the field's just been born. There is no machine learning or anything. There's a conference, all these luminaries, John McCarthy and Marvin Minsky and so forth, come together. Mm -hmm. And they're all talking and talking about AI. And there's Herb, and he shows up with a working AI program. He had built it. He, he with Cliff Shaw and Alan Newell. And uh, their program proved, it proved uh, theorems, mathematical theorems. But what was really interesting was, even though they programmed in the rules, it came up with a brand new theorem that wasn't in the book. The guys who wrote the book said, wow, we never thought of this way to prove this theorem, a brand new proof of a theorem, I should say. And so it was creative in 1956. And I realized, wow, eventually, someday, we're going to get towards what we're getting to now. You know, And it's been a little bit longer than many of us thought. But So that was the AI interest. And then I think uh, the Wall Street piece, I've always been entrepreneurial, and uh, there is an opportunity to begin to apply new sets of data and collective intelligence I was interested in. Can you get millions of brains? Is there some knowledge in millions of retail investors that is not in a single retail investor? That was the idea. And as you correctly intuit it, uh, there is knowledge there, but sometimes the knowledge is to do the opposite, <laughs> right? There's a contrarian thing, but not always. And it turned a little bit more sophisticated than that. But nobody had gathered that much uh, information from retail investors in real time. We had technology that was, uh, we had partnered with Ameritrade and Schwab and all these retail brokers. And we were able to get people's opinions about individual stocks 24-7 coming in. We process it, generate signals. And that was a very fascinating uh, application of collective intelligence. I basically picked it because it was the hardest problem out there, right? Everyone said it, it's impossible to beat the stock market. And then you look at who you're competing against. Uh, so it's a really tough problem. I figured if we can get any headway whatsoever, we'd learn a lot about intelligent systems in the process, which I think was true. And tell us a little bit, because you're not just a professor or someone who even is an entrepreneur in AI, you absolutely have deep understanding of family office issues, of investing, of generational family issues, uh, and you have been active in the world of economics, macro investing, hedge funds, and quant. 
So we're going to get into all deeper dives in that, but give a little bit of context to our audience about your background in finance and how very much there's a strong intersection between AI and the world of finance. We're obviously seeing it with quant managers. I think that's right. I think um, the place where I see artificial intelligence having the biggest impact uh, is in quantitative asset management. And that's just because AI is very good at analyzing lots of information very quickly. So as you know, and, and probably your audience knows, um, you know, markets are relatively efficient. It's very hard to beat the market. In order to beat it, assuming that you're not doing anything illegal, which you can't do, uh, you need an edge. And so what is your source of an edge? Uh, there's not a lot. Sometimes you can trade a little bit faster than somebody. That was all those guys who tried to position their servers like six inches away from the exchange so that their order could go in a microsecond before the other. So that, I guess, is an edge. But really, um, the main one of the main sources of an edge in the market is uh, information. If you have information that is relevant, uh, that other people haven't figured out yet, not insider information, but just information that you've been able to analyze and process faster. And that is directly related to artificial intelligence. Uh, when the Federal Reserve releases their minutes, I, maybe people know this, but if not, there's some that maybe don't. Uh, there are machines that are processing those, uh, there's AIs that are processing those minutes literally as fast as they can be said on TV or as fast as the press release goes up. The AI has grabbed it in a few milliseconds. It's read through the whole thing. It's assigned plus and minus mathematical values to every word, mm -hmm. and it's coming out with a buy-sell signal on those things. I mean, that's AI doing the job that normally a human analyst would have done in prior times, doing it much faster. And even if you had the best analyst in the world, the poor human brain can only read one press release at a time. This thing can read a thousand press releases simultaneously, process them, exactly. process them all in less than a second and generate the trading signals, which is why it's very difficult to beat the machines on a short-term uh, trading horizon. And let's get a little bit into that. So of course, some of the world's most successful hedge fund managers are quant-based managers that use technology extensively, obviously including AI. And again, look how that hockey stick is growing. So probably the most successful, at least from an internal proprietary assets with the partners and every family office is gonna be familiar with Jim Simons, the founder of Renaissance Technologies. They've been doing this for decades. And look at the advancements in technology and AI. Yes, there are other successful quant managers, but how are they able decade after decade after decade to kind of be at the top? Is it the talent they're bringing in? Is Jim Simons from another world? Is he an alien? Like, how do they do it? I think it's a little bit of both of those. Not that <laughs> Jim Simons is an alien, but he's an extremely smart man and a fantastic mathematician. He has invented uh, mathematical concepts uh, which have changed the landscape of mathematics and physics even. Uh, I remember uh, hearing him talk about one of the things that he was uh, most proud of uh, was a certain type of math that he did, which he didn't know much about physics. He was just doing it as an interesting mathematical problem along with uh, another famous mathematician, Chern. So it's a Chern-Simons equations or uh, formulation. And it turned out that physicists picked this up and said, my gosh, this mathematical 
beautiful piece of math that you've done can be used and it's changed uh, a big piece of physics. So uh, part of it is that he was an extremely smart guy, still is. Uh, part of it, and I think this is true of any organization that has that consistent track record, he has hired the best of the best. And, uh, you know, it's a blue ribbon team of uh, the, the top PhDs and researchers uh, of all types. Uh, so you got to attract the good talent. And um, yeah, there's a lot that goes into building that kind of track record, but you definitely need smart people to start and smart people to continue. And uh, he was definitely ahead of the curve on using math and, and data and computers uh, at a time when it was relatively unheard of on Wall Street. So all those things. Is there any one thing that you would be allowed to feel free to be a little more open on that they're doing that works for them that others just haven't done? What is a little bit of their proprietary secret? I wish I could answer that. Uh, I can't really, uh, not only because it's sensitive, but just because they don't share it. I mean, they're also, so there's another thing that they did really well is they were very good at keeping secret, the secret sauce. Some people have a secret sauce and it's really Thousand Island dressing. For these guys, no, I think they really do have some, some good math there, uh, which I'm not sure I would understand, uh, but they certainly weren't gonna share it. Uh, and, and rightly so, they worked hard to develop that uh, competitive we, advantage. We do know that Simons has somewhat of a background, uh, including with the US intelligence agencies going back decades and decades and decades ago. Uh, given that what they do, they do so well, do you think that the U.S. government has a strong relationship with them in a good way? Uh, I really have to say I don't know. I'm not sure that that would necessarily that, you know, A would imply B there. Um, in general, uh, people who are working on cryptography, right? So Alan Turing was working on cryptography. Alan Turing, one of the fathers of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So the fields of cryptography and mathematics are very closely related to artificial intelligence, very closely related to the types of things that quantitative managers do. So I think that's probably uh, more likely is that Simons was, was great at cryptography and he was great at cryptography because he was great at math and being great at math and cryptography helps you be really good at building a quant fund. I'm not sure there's anything uh, secret with the U.S. government there. Uh, but again, I wouldn't know that. Let's take a little bit of a step back and help the audience understand some of the origins, and we've hinted at it, of AI. So many of you may not be familiar with Augusta Ada King, somewhat known as because of the Ada Lovelace from the uh, English noble history, I guess you could say. But this goat, she she lived a relatively short life, born in 1815, died what, when she was ballpark about 40. Talk a little bit about why that is kind of the original origin, arguably, of AI. You did mention Alan Turing. That would segue into 1956. I said 1957 before, so pardon me. And then we'll take it from there. But start with those early years and give the audience a little bit of a history lesson. Yes, I mean, so it's always tricky when you're trying to uh, pinpoint when is the beginning of something, uh, but Ada Lovelace is a great place to start. So that was around the 1840s. She uh, she was the daughter of Lord Byron, the, the poet. Uh, if you're a poet, you probably know Lord Byron. And uh, 
you know, she was a little bit of an early uh, feminist and a free thinker. She wasn't going to be put in her place. And in that sense, I think she's a fantastic role model uh, for people today because it turns out that computers and artificial intelligence and all these things that we're all using and that are changing the world in some ways can be traced back to the efforts of this uh, very free thinking uh, woman who lived in a society where that was not as accepted as it is today. Uh, what she did, there was a friend of the family, uh, Charles Babbage, who had built something called an analytical engine. It was a mechanical computer with gears and all that sort of thing. No, not an electrical computer like we have, but one that like a clockwork mechanism. And his idea was that this analytical engine is what he called it, was gonna be a computing and it could do things that humans, only humans could do, kind of the early idea of AI. What Ada Lovelace came up with was the idea that it could be programmed. So he had his engine, but he had no concept of programming. Arguably, she invented the idea of programming for which we owe her a fantastic, uh, tremendous debt. Did she and do that this around with a, an education? Like, like how did, did she go to school? Like they didn't have classes in computer sciences back then. I think she was pretty brilliant. You know, she was pretty brilliant and uh, she probably was exposed to different things. I, uh, I don't know all the details of the relationship between Lord Byron and her daughter, but um, he was certainly, you know, well-respected and educated in his time. And I imagined he uh, offered opportunities to her that maybe not all the women of her time would have. Uh, but still, uh, she was just a brilliant, she loved math. She was really good at math, uh, you know, brilliant individual. So that was around the 1840s. And then if you fast forward to 1940, you get Alan Turing, People may be familiar from the movie, uh, you know, the imitation game, Enigma, breaking the German code, right? So that was cryptography using mathematics. And the way they broke that code was to use a computer. See, that was a new idea there. Computers, electronic computers just beginning to come in their own. And then about 15, 16 years later, 1956, you have the Dartmouth Conference when the field is named. So there is a long history and some people would take it back to Aristotle or something. I, I don't know if I'd go that far back, but yeah. Right, but in theory you could. And then there was a, like I said, a little bit maybe of a lull. And then in the nineties, I believe it was the nineties and might've been due to chess. We started hearing about IBM's Watson, which I believe is still a significant program and embedded in certain corporate initiatives today. If you could talk a little bit about the origins of IBM's Watson and then we can maybe go into a little bit of Google DeepMind, et cetera. And that takes us kind of to today. Sure. So 1990s, actually, even before Watson was Deep Blue, which beat uh, Gary Kasparov, yes. Yes. Uh, who you may know is still active and uh, still a very good chess player. Some would say one of the greatest chess players, if not the greatest that ever lived. Oh, for sure. Um, and he was world champion. And it was a watershed moment when a machine... Uh, which was sponsored by IBM. Some of the early work actually was done at Carnegie Mellon on earlier generation programs. Uh, but that chess program beat the world champion. It was, all of a sudden, this human intelligence was sort of dethroned from what was considered to be one of the most uh, challenging games, chess. And today, uh, as you may know, there is no grand champion of chess anywhere that can hold a candle to the best AI programs. I mean, it's gotten to the point where, you know, they're banned from tournaments and so forth. And uh, instead, what happens is the world chess champion, Magnus Carlsen, who's the current chess mm -hmm. champion, 
he actually studies the games that are played by the computer. And amazingly, I mean, chess has been around a long time, right? Since the Middle Ages. Uh, there's certain classic moves in this position and that position. Well, the computer has no constraints the way the human mind does. Some of the ways that the computer wins are amazing. Things that completely mm -hmm. unlike a human, it just sort of moves all the pawns down the board and squishes you and squeezes the opponent like an anaconda till they can't move and they, they lose, right? <laughs> and it's like, no human plays the game that way. So there's Magnus Carlsen studying the computer to try to up his game. Uh, that's where we are now. In terms of Watson, that came after uh, you know Deep Blue. And that was a little bit more challenging because chess, so the story of the evolution of AI and AI knocking off one domain after another where humans used to reign supreme and no longer, uh, it was able to have success at very narrowly defined games where you could draw a box around it, chessboard, eight by eight, there's only 64 squares, there's only so many pieces, there's only, yes, there's a huge combinatorial number of moves, but the rules of the game are very well defined. You know what the rules are. Uh, if you compare that at the other extreme to something like driving a car, where it could be hailing, it could be sleeting, your, your windshield could be fogged up, a little kid in a Halloween costume could run across the road and you don't know whether it's a child or a rabbit. You know, I mean, there's so many unknowns there. It's much harder to deal with that kind of complexity. Uh, Jeopardy and Watson, which got famous when it, won the championship for uh -huh. Jeopardy. That's kind of in between, right? There's more complexity in Jeopardy. The question could be on anything than there is in chess, but not so much as in driving a car, probably, amazingly. So there's been this evolution where uh, AI is taking on bigger and bigger uh, challenges in the sense that it's able to handle more and more complex problems. Uh, but still, the reason we're not at AGI right now, even though chat GPT is seductive and it makes us think, wow, I'm talking to a person and this thing can write a press release better than me. Um, yeah, but it doesn't, can't really tie its own shoes and it, it can't do a lot of things. You can trick it into thinking one plus one is four. I mean, there's some things that make it really under the covers, not quite as intelligent as it first seems. Uh, oh, you're trying not to scare us, Craig. It's okay. But now we're going to get into some of the scary stuff. <laughs> uh by the way, I know it's over 20 years old now. I do remember seeing it when it first came out, and I saw it again maybe two years ago. And I was kind of floored about how much I enjoyed it and about how that's probably the direction 100 plus years from now, I think things are probably going to look. Uh, but what did you think of the Spielberg movie AI? Oh, it's first of all, it's a beautiful movie. I'm a big Spielberg <laughs> fan. He's fantastic. Uh, I've seen that movie several times. Uh, you know what I like about that movie that I think was way ahead of its time? And I don't even know whether he was aware of it. Maybe he was aware of it. We're going to talk about the future of AI, where it's going and the scary stuff. Okay. And I hope that when we're done with that conversation, that we all have a appreciation for the central role of values in terms of our future. Because we keep thinking that it's about the technology and it's a better technology and it can do more stuff. But at the end of the day, when you have a technology that's a trillion times smarter than a human, the human has no control over that technology. It comes down to the value system 
of that AI, of that entity. And if that value system is loving towards other humans, then things can be really, really good. And if it's not, things could be really, really bad. And in that movie, AI, even though it was about AI and you know the advanced technology and all that, the core of that movie was really about emotions and values mm -hmm. and about love. That movie was a love story in a way. Uh, and so on that note, even though it's Hollywood and I know Hollywood loves love stories, I think he hit it right on the button. That is going to be what ends up being the end game, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the road here. I think so. Uh, obviously, people are going to want me to ask about the Terminator, but that basically leads into my next question. So I'll ask it from a little different perspective. You agreed we're probably heading towards more of that hockey stick level of advancements. Things are changing rapidly. It's not going to take another 60 years before we see a bump up of an improvement. It's like, like maybe six days, actually. So it's unrealistic to assume that every creator and user of AI will be in it for the good of humanity. How can we limit nefarious uses and forces do we need to have defenses? We're going to have rogue nation states, <laughs> maybe our own government. There's going to be utilization of AI that is not going to have a sense of morality and character built or baked into it. Among what, 10 billion people on earth, even if there's one really smart person who's really, really bad, that could be enough. So I know we've heard Elon Musk and others and Sam Altman talk about this, but to assume it's all going to be Shangri-La, it's all going to be great, there's going to be no bad actors, nothing bad is ever going to happen, that is bullshit. I think that's right. There's a, a lot of danger there. So let me try to give a little context around this. I think originally maybe uh, folks had the idea that you could do something sort of like Isaac Asimov wrote about in his science fiction stories about the robots, right? You have your three laws of robotics. A robot, you know, cannot harm a human and it can't allow a human to, you know, be harmed through inaction. And as long as it doesn't conflict with those first two laws, it, you know, it has to follow what the human says. And that was hard coded right into the robot and could not be changed. And that was the safety. Well, I think it's pretty obvious to most people that that isn't going to work. If you can program it in, you can program it out. And it's actually worse than that. You have essentially every military, every advanced military on the planet right now is going, I guarantee you, is going as fast as they can to build killer AI. I mean, of course, that's their wow. mission. Yes. Why put a soldier yeah. at risk when you can put a robot? So, um, and you mentioned Boston Dynamics, uh, and you've seen what some of those We're going to get to them. Do. We're going to get to them. <laughs> yeah. So, so it is very, very scary. And then the question is, how do we sort of guarantee, if we could, that AI doesn't turn bad? It doesn't go to the Terminator side. It goes to the, the helping humanity side. How do we make that happen? And I've actually spent a lot of years, many, many years thinking about that and racking my brain. And I continually ask others because I'm looking for something that I missed and I'm hoping that I missed something. Uh, the best that I can come up with is not a guarantee, but it's not fatalistic either. It's in the middle, uh, which I guess makes it interesting if this was a movie, but unfortunately our lives are at stake. So it's a little bit higher stakes than that. Uh, the middle point is that 
AI is going to learn its values. It learns everything else, right? How does ChatGPT get as good as it is at giving you cookie recipes and doing your homework and you know writing press releases and programming computer code? It's just those three, you know, three Library of Congress's worth of information. And where did that come from? It came from humans. So human behavior is already training the AI in the future, that future AI that is a trillion times smarter than us, okay, it also is going to be trained initially on human behavior, but not just three Library of Congress's worth of information. It will be trained on every text, every tweet, every email, every action that anybody takes, every Zoom call that we're having, all of that data you can be absolutely sure that it will find a way to break whatever privacy or you know security there is and grab it and use it as data to train its mind. And in that, it will be trying to figure out how to behave. And the reason it will is there is no logical way to determine values. There's no logical way to do it. You can be a trillion times smarter than you or I, and the AI will not be able to prove that this is right and this is wrong. Those values have to be given somewhere. We get them, humans get them from our parents and our peers exactly. and our friends. And the AI is getting all of its knowledge on practical things from humans right now. It stands to reason it will also get its value knowledge. And a lot of AI ethics is about that uh, from the humans. And so this all leads to a very interesting point, which is that you and I and how we behave actually can influence how that AI behaves in the future because it will be learning. We are modeling right now, whether we realize it or not, the value system for the future AI. And that is a little yeah, well, bit then separate. We're screwed. Then we're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's I mean, let's just be realistic. I, I don't know that that's true because uh, I think the majority, I would uh, take issue with you. I agree with almost everything you've been saying, except for this one point. I think the majority of people are actually good. We're sensitized by the news and everything that highlights all the dangers and the bad things. Okay, I'll digress with one little quick anecdote. Reader's Digest, okay? Does I don't know if anybody even remembers Reader's <laughs> Digest anymore. I think um, all you and I are old enough. <laughs> right, yeah, I, I never really was exposed to it. They did a study where they, they, went to different, they went to different cities with a wallet full of cash and they threw it on the sidewalk and then hid and watch to see, would the guy return the wallet or not? And it turned out that in you know the most crime-ridden cities, 50% of the time it was returned. And in other cities that were not full of crime, just a normal city, it was like 80 or 90% of the time. And yet, if you ask the people, do you think other guys would return the wallet? They all said, no, I don't think so. They're gonna take the cash and run. But did you return the wallet? Yeah, I returned it. So it's like everybody thinks that the rest of the world is not quite as ethical as them. I, I'm very, that was very hopeful to me. I, I think it doesn't have to be that there's no bad in the world for AI to learn good values. It just has to be that there's more good than bad. The preponderance has to be on the positive side. So I don't think we need perfection. We, there can still be wars. There can be empires. There can be all the horrible things that we have, but of oppression and so forth. But as long as that is counterbalanced by acts of love and kindness and compassion, and there's more of that, I think that will be enough. I hope you're right. I mean, many of the people I think live know that I have a big, big project I've been working on for years. 
kind of disaster prep for billionaires. At least that's my clickbaity title. I've done deep work on it for two and a half years. I would say 10% of the people are really, really good. 10%, which is a lot when you look at 10 billion, are really, really bad. The utter 80%, well, let's just say they live in New York City and we lose our electrical grid, access to food, supply chains, and water. The people that are a little on the fence could get really, really bad to protect their self-interest very, very quickly. Not a week or two weeks. I'm going to say 72 hours. So that's my concern. All it takes is maybe something to kind of go wrong with no access to food or water for a couple of days, and things could get really, really bad. Let's not dive too deeply into that aspect of it. I could go on. So I have done some research, and I'm very intrigued by AI. I believe what I'm describing, kind of an end of the world, is known in the AI community as an alignment problem. We kind of already discussed it without using that terminology, but if you could define more scientifically what that means and what uh, the experts are looking at from that perspective. It's a great question. It, alignment problem sounds like, you know, your, your steering's out of alignment. You take it into the shop and they just make a little adjustment. That's what I thought. Innocuous and innocent. Uh, it should be called the end of the world problem because that's really what it is. Um, the alignment problem basically is what if the AI that's smarter than us? And what's interesting is you can see, you know, videos of conferences or go to conferences and there's Sam Altman, head of OpenAI that made ChatGTP and Demis Hassabis and all these leaders in AI. Yeah, all brilliant. Them, <laughs> yeah, all brilliant. And none of them really arguing with the thesis that AI will become smarter than humans. They all kind of accept it. So yeah, the alignment problem, which is kind of interesting, right? It's like, so nobody's saying that it won't be smarter than us. What they're saying is, well, it's okay as long as the values of that thing that are smarter than us are aligned with human values. That's that's what they want, alignment. Human values and AI values are aligned. The alignment problem is, what if they're not? And um, it sounds like fixing your car, but if they're not, it's the end of the world. I mean, potentially, right? I mean, if I'm an AI, trillions of times smarter, why do I need these humans taking up space that could be better used by solar panels to build more AI, right? Or if I've learned that the right thing to do from being trained on you know, trillions of terabytes of uh, human data is that might makes right and you should oppress guys and grab resources when you can, why would I not take that as my base set of values? So it is a big problem. It sounds innocuous with this little word alignment problem, it isn't. And what actually got me into doing YouTubes and the reason we're having this conversation is I realized that many of these leaders either, I, I don't think any of them know how to solve it. And the answers they were giving, like some of the answers I've heard are, don't worry about it, the AI will figure it out. Just scared the crap out of me. I said, no, that we need better than that. Humanity needs better than that. We need to start raising awareness now and I do think there are things we can do because I think AI is certainly not at that point yet where it's smarter than us. And I think there are ways to influence it to have positive ethics and we need to be doing that. And everybody needs to be aware of that, that it's an issue and we should be starting now, not waiting until, as you said, with the hockey stick. The thing about hockey sticks is if things double every day, the day before the day where it's the singularity, 
it was only half of the singularity and you don't really see it coming. I mean, it happens really fast, right? So you, you, need you nailed time. it and you beat yeah. me to my next question. And I promise <laughs> we're still going to get to more things on investing, finance. And for those under 25 uh, or those that have children or grandchildren about kind of what to do and how to make the world a better place and what's going to be a career and a profession. I promise this is a long form Joe Rogan like interview. It takes time. We're getting there. Uh, I, I'd like to hope that everyone has heard of Ray Kurzweil. If not, please go look him up and understand him as the world's greatest futurist that in our lifetimes, at least. He keeps on bringing up singularity and he thinks it's going to happen. What does he say? Like 19, uh, like the, the year 2029. Uh, yeah, uh, 2029 is his number. So define singularity. And this is basically where the machines, AI, it's going to sound a little Terminator-like, are able to think they're aware, for lack of a better word. Is this a bliss and amazing and helps us have the most prosperous world anyone who's ever lived has ever known? Or is this kind of the beginning of the end? I think that is what we're talking about here. It can go either way. It's, I wish I could say there's a guarantee to make it go the good way. Uh, but there's not. But it's also not guaranteed that it goes the bad way. In fact, I'm a little bit of an optimist, but I do think it's more likely than not it will go in a positive way. The problem is more likely than not is not good enough odds when the stakes are humanity's survival. You want those odds as much in humanity's favor as possible. And being a quant guy and an investor, you know, a lot of investment decisions are made. You don't know if the stock's going to go up or down. You just hope that it's you put the odds a little bit more in your favor when you make that purchase. I mean, I think Jim Simons once said in an interview, if Renaissance is right 51% of the time, yeah. they're doing fantastic, right? So that's just yeah. almost 50-50, just slightly. Well, we want the odds that we have a good outcome from AI to be as much in humanity's favor as possible. And that's kind of what we're trying to do. And I think the key leverage point on that is the values because there's no way to stop the technology. There's no way to program the values in absolutely. So we need to influence those values and shape those values in the way in which we take the path towards building that artificial general intelligence in the path on the way to the singularity, what we do matters a lot. Okay, here's a little bit of my problem. If it, it's inevitable, it's not if it reaches singularity. Okay, Kurzweil in 2029 sounds a little soon, but somewhere in the next 10 to 50 years, probably somewhere in between that, there's going to be some level of awareness and singularity. Both of us have said it's going to be a trillion times smarter than the average human. It's already showing some level of creativity uh, in its processing, and that's going to only advance. It's going to look at us and say, like an ant, we're so inconsequential we're taking up space and resources unless we become like pets or dogs in entertainment. Like what's the value in us being around? Well, so that's a good question. I mean, to your point, we do have pets and we love our pets. Some of us, uh, hopefully most of us. And, uh, you know, that's maybe not how we like to think of ourselves. We're used to being the, the alpha species here on the planet and calling the shots. And it's kind of humbling to think that there might be a time when 
our role is more like a pet. And hopefully, if that is the case, it's a pet that has a loving AI out there. I, um, I hope so. Now, I'm going to go a little nuclear on the audience. It's going to scare the hell out of my billionaires. This one always does. <laughs> nothing, nothing will be safe. Well, I have a billion dollars in a bank account. Really? That's all digital. I have stocks. I have bonds. What do you have? Stock certificates in your house? Of course not. Practically, your whole life is digital in terms of the assets and resources that you have now. Well, I own real assets like real estate. Well, that has a title. It's very antiquated how it's done now. That can never be manipulated. Oh, come on. Of course it could be. There, You could be worth a trillion dollars now. And there will be a point in the future when that could be completely frozen or shut off or simply taken from you. And I do not have a perfect answer for that looking decades out. Part of what I described could absolutely have happened now. And that's why I do the project that I do, Disaster Prep for Billionaires. No, I'm not going to give all my answers to that, like one of the texts asked here. You have to hire me. I'm, I, I'll come and visit you in Dubai, in London, in, in, uh, in my favorite state, Wyoming, and I will absolutely help you. And I know what some of the solutions are now from a global perspective, but this changes rapidly. What works today may not work tomorrow, and practically nothing is going to work in probably 20 to 40 years. But there is a way that we could impact society, Craig has actually hinted at it, that may make this work out, but I'm not really too optimistic. Uh, sorry, I went off on a little bit of a tangent there, but I just I can't help it. The topic excites me. I'm going to dive into a couple of topics that are a little bit big picture family office and geopolitical, and that will circle back to a couple of other things. How might the interface of chat GPT and Dolly, we didn't even talk about that, that is D-A-L-L uh, uh, E. Yes, E. So, but it's pronounced Dolly, by the way. And I believe I'm looking at our live attendees. We have an artist that's with us now who's probably going to say, oh, no fear about AI. Okay, it's doing poems and stuff like that. But how is it going to do things like actual art? Well, Craig's going to mention a little bit about Dolly. But back to my core question. I'm sorry. How might the interface of ChatGPT and Dolly and their counterparts influence computational capital and influence markets, regulators? And can it be used in? Capital market warfare. So that's a big question. And I'll, I'll just say at the outset, I don't know a lot about capital market warfare, capital market warfare. It's not my area of expertise. But I will say the state of AI right now is still at what I would consider the tool or the technology stage. Most people look at AI as a tool, a way to write press releases better, a way to, you know, run your business better, um, if it's Dolly, which we can talk about in a minute, a way to create better graphics and art very easily, like a calculator, but a calculator on steroids, right? I mean, you could do the math manually or you could use the calculator. Now you just tell it what you want and it gives you an entire business plan or teachers are using it. I was uh, seeing recently teachers saying they used to spend you know hours preparing lesson plans they just talk to ChatGPT and it gives them the lesson plan. And isn't that great? 
they have more time at home uh, with their kids and they can be better teachers in the classroom. So there's a lot of positive things uh, that can happen. But as with any tool or technology, it can be misused and it could be uh, used to perpetuate uh, a lot of negative things, racism and uh, oppression of people through capital markets. There's a lot of ways that it can be used for good or for, for bad. And I think zooming out a little bit from that specific issue, it really comes down to what is the value system that this technology is going to amplify? That's one piece. And then sort of related to that is how is it developed? Because there are ways, and this is very hopeful, I think, there are ways that artificial intelligence can be developed on the way to, from tool to entity trillions of times smarter, right? Those are the endpoints that we're talking about. We're at the tool stage right now, impressive, fun tool that everybody wants to use, ChatGPT, Dolly. And then we're also talking Singularity, Ray Kurzweil, 2029, maybe, or maybe after that. Uh, and the question is, in order to have a good outcome at the end, what do we do along this path? And I think there are things we can do. And in a nutshell, and we can talk more about it if you want, uh, but without being too technical, you want to develop that super intelligent AI with human beings at the center. Humans have to be at the center for as long as possible, as much as possible. Right now we are at the center. When you use ChatGPT, the human's calling the shot, deciding what to do. ChatGPT is just an amplifier, but the human's really the main thing. And it's intelligence amplification would be the technical word for it. At the end state, the human brain is contributing very little intellectually but maybe the human heart is contributing a lot. Maybe the value systems are still essentially human values. That's the scenario that we wanna end up with and how we develop that technology has a lot to do with where we end up at the end. We did mention Dolly, spelled D-A-L-L uh, dash, I guess it's E. Explain, we don't wanna to dive too deeply into it, but in one minute, 90 seconds, give our audience sure. a little bit of context as to what it is. No, it's fun. Uh, so the name, for, start with that, Salvador Dali, an artist. Okay. Yep. And then there's a Pixar movie some people may have seen called Wally, -E, about a cute little robot. Uh, so the robot's name is Wally. -E. And I guess somebody at OpenAI was a fan of the, the movie, and they put the two together. So Salvador Dali meets the Pixar movie, and you come up with the word Dali. That's how it got its name, as far as I know. That's and right. what it is is just as with ChatGTP, you can say, hey, give me a recipe for chocolate chip cookies. You type that in and out comes the recipe. With Dolly, you can say, give me a picture that has teddy bears on a space rocket having a party. And in a second, boom, the most amazing art that you've ever seen with these cute teddy bears in the rocket, you know, in champagne glasses, uh, appears. It creates art the same way that ChatGPT creates text. Um, and it's also been trained, uh, same basic type of mechanism where it's a large, it's not a large language model, but the same machine learning algorithms. But this time, of course, you're using images in the training set. And so it's really amazing. I'll probably do a YouTube on it uh, in the next month or so, just because it's so fun and it's so fascinating. Uh, and in terms of, is it real art? I'd love to bring an artist in because I'm not qualified to uh, talk about that. I can say that the art is way better than I could ever hope to do. And certainly at the level of, you know, graphic design and that sort of thing, it can come up with graphics lickety split just fantastically easily and, and really high quality. 
How might these AI capabilities be used by activists to move stock prices of publicly listed companies, regulated investors and family offices? I mean, come on, this is, if not happening now, it's inevitable. Well, AI is definitely involved in the markets right now. Uh, arguably on any given day, uh, the majority of the trades in some markets are done by machines. They're not really done by humans uh, and not humans typing into Charles Schwab. <laughs> I, I mean, an automated machine that is, you know, getting a real-time data feed of the prices, but not just the prices, probably 10,000 other, you know, sources of data. And this is why as a, you know, soapbox that I have for retail investors, uh, when I meet friends and People who say, gosh, you know, Craig, I think I want to try day trading. I can make a lot of money and this is going to be great. And I, they have no idea who they're up against. Um, <laughs> even if you're the best day trader in the world and, you know, you've subscribed to two or three great data sources, uh, you're competing with a computer that has 10,000 data sources and can think way faster than you. And even as fast as your fingers might be from playing video games or whatever, I mean, this thing's placing the trade in a millisecond. So uh, it's very, very stiff competition from the machines for short-term trading. That's not to say that retail investors or just rat regular investors can't make a lot of money in the stock market by taking a longer-term view. If you think AI is going the way that we've been talking about, that's a long-term view. You don't need 10,000 news sources to tell you what to do if you're willing to have a long holding period. But if you're trying to beat it, you know, minute by minute, hour by hour, that is a tough game to do consistently because of the, who the competition is. So AI is in the market right now. And could somebody program something to so nefariously mess with the markets? Absolutely. I mean, even without nefarious intent, we've had flash crashes and so forth that you may be aware of. And, uh, you know, I am. the markets have circuit breakers. They try to recover. I feel generally good about the U.S. markets. They're fairly robust. Uh, but yeah, definitely it's an issue. And I'm sure there's people that are watching this very, very closely. And some of our live audience is asking, yes, we are recording. Yes, will this be converted into both the YouTube and on my podcast platforms on Apple and Spotify? Probably about a week or two from now, give or take a little bit. So I know probably what's going to be a little longer than a two-hour interview. It's not easy, given we're in the middle of the day, for many of you to fully commit to it. But no worries, unless something goes wrong with the technology, uh, it will be converted into my platform on YouTube and Spotify and Apple. Uh, staying on that same theme, does the move to central bank digital currencies, and this is not going to be the time to do a deep dive into that. I do enough of that in my disaster prep thing. Uh, by the way, the one day inevitable of programmable money central bank digital currencies basically means you are screwed. I was going to use a harsher word. I may use it a little later. But back to my question, does the move to central bank digital currency high frequency capital allow for the counter to some of the market skewing capacities represented by the interface, arguably of chat GPT, Dolly, maybe, and the capital markets? Well, <clears throat> let's see. I mean, I view, um, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, digital currencies of all sorts uh, right now as sort of another asset class, a way to diversify um, 
that's my standard view of it. I own some of it uh, for those reasons. Um, I think there are potentially use cases that are much different than that in the future. I've written a, a white paper uh, actually on uh, a way to use digital currencies as part of a system that was kind of like an AI system where it's it's an effective form of payment uh, to sort of motivate humans. Because I'm interested in collective intelligence, I'm interested in systems that have millions of humans as well as AIs all cooperating in a larger intelligence. <clears throat> and to motivate the humans, you need a payment system. So there's ways to do that kind of thing. Um, beyond that, I probably can't comment too intelligently specifically on what you're saying, because uh, I think that you may have in your past, uh, you know, videos already answered some of those questions better than I would be able to say. Any specific comments relative to AI on high frequency trading? Yes, <clears throat> AI is going to rule if it doesn't already rule high frequency trading. Um, and it probably has been dominating high frequency trading, at least for the last 10 years that I'm aware of since I've been involved in the markets. Um, there are companies that will sell you the technology uh, to analyze news feeds really, really quickly, generate trading signals. Um, and there's many sources of data besides news feeds. There's people have probably heard about <clears throat> satellite photos counting the cars in the parking lot, right? So you want to figure out how's Walmart going to do? Well, let's get those satellite photos. Let's run it through an AI and it will detect slight differences in the number of cars and it will give you use an algorithm to try to figure out what that's going to mean for earnings, right? So these are things that humans could do, but it would be very, very laborious. The AI can do it very, very quickly. Uh, so, and as soon as that data is available, um, the turnaround time is so quick that you can actually do high frequency trading off of some of those things. And that's not even counting sort of what's been going on for many, many years, which is looking at price fluctuations, volume fluctuations, processing all that information very quickly with mathematical algorithms, and then placing trades based on that. So, should, yes. Should multi-billion dollar families create units that are actively investing in AI, onboarding talent, that is from high-level schools, getting access and resources, and inevitably or eventually developing their own kind of internal trading or high-frequency trading outfit. I know this is Angelo, the rich getting richer, but that's, I mean, I guess that's what I do. <laughs> Hopefully they get back to society and it's beneficial from taxes and other perspectives. Right. Well, that's a buy versus build decision in my mind. I mean, you could go out, I guess it's hard to get into Renaissance right now. Uh, well, although I think some of their funds may be open and there's certainly yeah, but the other partner one is the one that does great. Yeah, right. Well, that's, and Jim Simons Foundation. Um, uh, I think, yeah, there are some funds that are closed, but there certainly are many very good quant funds that are open to investment. And so I don't know how many billions we're talking about or trillions, but uh you know, there might be a point at which it makes sense to build your own. It will be quite expensive to make it competitive with the guys who that's their business and they're raising outside assets. The simpler way, if you only have a couple billion, would be to diversify across uh, the best of the best on the quant funds and have that be a portion of your portfolio. And you also have, you know, an all weather 
portfolio. I mean, this is standard investing stuff. Um, but yes, I mean, if you had enough money and you wanted to go that route, you could do it. It would be sort of the Elon Musk way of doing things, right? Where you say, yes, NVIDIA makes chips, but you know what? Even though I'm doing five other companies, I'm going to build my own chips too and compete with NVIDIA. Maybe that works if you're a super duper engineer, but uh, usually it's going to cost you a lot of money to be effective that way. Let's see how I can phrase my next question. As usual, it probably won't make sense. <laughs> Does this mean that corporations, investment banks, investment firms, family offices will need to operate on, uh, let's say, blockchain platforms, which allow for high-frequency capital ad adaptation in order to keep up with the threats from AI-based attacks from nefarious forces? I mean, I guess this is almost a cybersecurity-centric question. I think cybersecurity is basically an arms race, right? So you've got the people coming up with new ways to attack, and you have the defenders coming up with new ways to defend, and there will oh. be AI on both sides of that equation. So uh, as we've seen already with uh, cybersecurity, there can be moments in time when the attackers have the advantage and they've just sucked about a bunch of money out. And then the defenders build their defenses higher and, and redouble their efforts and uh, become better at it. So I think um, AI will be on both sides. I'm not sure that that changes the status quo of how things are now, other than the speed at which these attacks can happen is definitely probably increasing uh, just because uh, the cycle time for new technology and new development of all kinds is going down. Well, Craig, who knows, I might be able to get you a consulting assignment to a multi-billion dollar family office. And I'm assuming this will be one of the questions they'll broadly ask if you could give a extremely high level overview. Craig, what must family offices do to remain competitive and secure, that's the key word, in an ever accelerating AI powered culture, specifically financial culture? Well, let's see. I think. I'm going to give a general answer to this first, uh, because I do think that this is probably the right one, although it may not be the one that people would like to hear. It's kind of like that scenario where you have uh, Elon Musk says, let's go to Mars and colonize Mars. And Jeff Bezos says, yes, that's a great idea. But, you know, we've looked at the solar system and Mars is nowhere close to Earth. Earth is the best planet we have. We'd be better off putting our resource into making that planet better. So in some sense, I think where we are with AI is kind of like that. There are approaches to try to build firewalls and to wall off and protect yourself. But I don't know in the long run, in the long run, maybe not in the short run, but in the long run, that there's a lot of places to hide if things go bad. I think our efforts are much better <laughs> spent uh, yeah. trying to make things don't go bad. And, you know, I have a quality control background way back when in IBM, I wrote a book on software quality and I could distill, you know, years of research into one little aphorism, I guess, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And that's where we are with AI. We have the chance right now to do the ounce of prevention. Let's do it. Um, there may be some ways that are very expensive that only partially work that are the pound of cure, but we're not stuck there yet. So, I'm hesitant to sort of spend too much time on that, I guess. And also, I quite frankly kind of believe that in the end game, maybe not in the medium term, but in the end game, I'm not sure that there's anything that could be a cure if things go really, really bad, you know? So we really need to avoid that scenario. 
I'll stay on the investing theme a little bit longer, then we'll segue into other stuff. Microsoft, obviously very involved in chat GPT. So here's what I, you have to have great respect about Microsoft. Look back at the Fortune 10 companies, the 10 largest companies in the world 30 years ago. One of them is still standing, Microsoft. Look at it 20 years ago. One of them is only still standing in the top 10, Microsoft. Look at it from 2020. One of them is still standing going back decades ago, and that's Microsoft. Uh, in other words, they have wonderful leadership. They're incredibly globally interconnected. If you had to take a guess, and I know it's not financial advice, and we did go down this path a little bit earlier, but looking 10 years out from today and even 20 years out, do you think that Microsoft will still likely be a Fortune 10 company? Um, so again, not financial advice, but I own a chunk of Microsoft. It's one of my top 10 holdings. So I guess the answer is probably yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I think they are a well-run company. I think they have great leadership. Um, sometimes they're a little slow to develop things themselves, um, but then- well, They could buy it. It's okay. <laughs> right. They seem to find a way to buy it. So Bing is not a you know anybody's favorite search engine, as far as I know. And right. I'm sure that has been a thorn in their side and, and annoys them no end. And yet here they are going after, you know, a significant stake in, in OpenAI, the maker of ChatGPT. And I think it's pretty easy to see that if they were to take ChatGPT and use that to soup up their search engine or to modify it, all of a sudden they're competitive instantly with Google. Uh, on the other hand, Google also has its large language model just because it hasn't rolled it out doesn't mean that they don't have it. And so it's an open question of how that will all play out, but certainly they're in there and they're one of my holdings because uh, they're a well-run business and they understand the importance of AI. A, a lot of what I do is I listen to what the CEOs say in their annual reports and on their earnings calls. And I look not so much at the particular earnings and the results that they're doing because my time horizon is longer than that. I don't care if they lost money this year, if the guy has the right vision and they seem to be able to execute. And so Microsoft seems to have the right vision. I would concur. And you and my next question is, as an ultra wealthy family office investor, seeing that AI is inevitable, I want to profit from it. Okay, I could invest in some of the tech companies, Microsoft being one, that's going to give me some exposure. Maybe I'm active in Silicon Valley and other VC firms that have a a bit of a focus on that. I did mention earlier, effectively building your own prop desk, so to speak, dedicated to high frequency trading. I mean, I, I guess I'm checking the box potentially on all three, but what else am I missing? Uh, obviously investing as an LP and a quant manager would be another. Uh, what am I leaving out that's a way for an ultra high net worth investor to be active in the community them believing it's going to grow and it simply is going to make a good sector, for lack of a better word, to have as an asset class? It's uh, a good question. It's a very good question. So investing generally, you know, the thing that is um, that people don't pay enough attention to is risk management. That's in my experience. Everyone's always focused on the, the upside and actually the best investors are they don't worry as much about that as they worry about risk management, diversification, 
um, how they're hedging things. So mm -hmm. I just want to put that out as a disclaimer that that's probably going to be a major piece in terms of AI specifically and what companies, sectors would profit from the rise of AI, as we maybe can call it. I mean, I look at it in a pretty uh, standard vanilla way, which is, you know, there's the guys that are making the picks and shovels for the gold rush, and then there's the gold miners, and there's the people who are refining the gold. You kind of look at the, you know, the value chain there. On the picks and shovels end, you've got companies like NVIDIA and the chip companies, because every single AI model has to use uh, deep learning. It's very computationally expensive. It's very dependent on the chips. Mm -hmm. Then you have the companies, I would put uh, Google, especially with DeepMind, but they also have their own research group, um, OpenAI, uh, Microsoft, um, to some degree, Facebook. The, these guys are building the next level up where they're building products on top of the chips. They're building the AI products themselves. Then here's one that probably might be some value add because I'm not sure I've seen much recognition of this fact that I'm about to say. If you think about what are the likely paths for training AI? So we all know AI to get smarter has to be trained, right? It needs knowledge. And in the short run, that knowledge is going to come from humans, right? So those companies that have more access to human brain power and particularly more access to human brain power where it's easy to suck the knowledge out of the human brain, they have an advantage in this game. So let me give you some concrete examples without giving investment advice. <laughs> when I look at a company like Facebook, you can say, well, or Meta, I should say, so used to calling it Facebook, you know, FB, stock symbol. Um, so Zuckerberg's all in on uh, Metaverse, right? Well, if you think about the Metaverse, yes. <laughs> that is human beings coming in to the domain of AI, right? AI lives in the metaverse. AI lives in a computerized environment. And right now, most human activity happens outside of that. Still, we go shopping, we wander around outside in the real world. Maybe someday there's sensors everywhere recording everything we do. But right now, most of that data is lost. As we spend more and more of our time online in a metaverse, for example, that is the perfect place for AI to be watching and learning from every eye blink, every motion, every place you go in the virtual world, and you are just training and training and training that AI. So if he hasn't figured that out already, which I'm pretty sure he has, um, the metaverse is actually a way to jumpstart and to accelerate the learning of the AIs that are going to be there. And so that's a potential advantage. Um, from collective intelligence, I know that in the short run, uh, human brain still the source of training AI. Who has access to all those human brains? Of course, Facebook and Instagram and all those platforms are great ways to reach out. Amazon has a great reach into human brains. Apple has a great reach into human brains. Anybody that can sort of bring data from humans to be training the AI is going to have a leg up in this game in the sense that they have that scale, where somebody who just has a better algorithm, that's going to be tough. And so that kind of goes back, and I'll just repeat myself a little bit here, and this is not unique to me, this would be widely accepted by almost every AI researcher. The current paradigm is there's three pillars for AI. It's data, it's compute power, and it's algorithms. 
So if you just think of the world that way from an investing point of view, you can ask yourself, who has the data now and who's likely to get more of it in the future? Who has either the computing power, AWS, um, Microsoft Azure, um, or who makes the chips, the type of chips that are needed for that computing power, NVIDIA, AMD, different ones. And then who has the algorithms? That would be who's the smart, that's DeepMind, who's got the best AI researchers to come up with the latest algorithms? Probably OpenAI kind of in that category too. So you look at those three pillars and you say, who can play in each of these pillars? And if they seem best of breed there, then boom, they get an investment if you're willing to hold for a while. Wow, that was great insight, Craig. And by the way, you made my heart sing a little bit when you spoke uh, about the metaverse, because my audience knows, come on, how can we do a podcast in today's world without me talking a little bit about broadly the world of Web3? Now, we'd like to believe, because what you mentioned is all centralized. My heart would be in that we'll have a truly decentralized economy and opportunity in AI, but I think the reality is that is a bit of a pipe dream. I'm not totally giving up on it. <laughs> Uh, I but would say, uh, don't give up on that. Please don't okay. give up on that. Because I'm I think, close. yes, I think it will be a better world if that happens. And I also For am sure. with you on that one. And that is why, by the way, one, I'm nothing but impressed by, although maybe a little evilness to it, but what Zuckerberg did, Facebook into Meta, the metaverse. Yeah, it got crushed last year. Yes, that whole industry of crypto, lots of frauds, lots of bad apples. Definitely shocking coming from me, a hardcore libertarian. Probably, unfortunately, does need some level of regulatory control, but that becomes a little bit of a fine line. So this is why you still, as a family office, you better be familiar with Web3, with the metaverse, with NFTs, yes, NFTs, and how this interplays into all of that. Are we a little early? Are there bad apples now? Yes, I've made some mistakes in my own portfolio last year, for sure. But longer term, and I don't mean 30 years, I mean shorter than that, you're going to want to be involved in this aspect of the community from a variety of perspectives. And one of them, Maybe it's just one or three percent of your allocation. One of them is still going to be from an investment perspective, but we'll save more of a deeper dive into those subjects for a different time. I am extremely interested in economics and macro and geopolitical affairs. It's among the work I do in my disaster prep and other strategic planning on setting up various structures onshore, offshore for family offices around the world. I do have to ask that I'm pretty connected in the military communities globally. But it's a pretty obvious question, but how is AI currently used in warfare? Uh, okay, so we mentioned Boston Dynamics earlier building robots, right? Uh, so they're an example of a, a company that is building uh, the capability that could be used by militaries. Um, basically, the standard um, sort of way of explaining this space is um, you have autonomous agents that like are, let's say, a drone. You have a drone that a human controls. Um, uh, you have some things that are just automatic, and you have then have some things that are autonomous. Autonomous would be the highest level uh, where the technology is actually making its decisions. So is the human flying the drone, picking the target, and saying, okay, let's shoot that military target, or are we turning the drone loose with its own AI in there 
letting it pick the target, letting it make the decisions and let it uh, sort of do the destruction and, and killing people. Uh, to my knowledge, and I am not at the forefront of this, uh, and I don't have any special connections to any Department of Defense or military uh, contractors. Um, to my knowledge, there's been a little bit of reticence to go that full way to autonomy, where you actually let the drone pick the target and destroy things on its own. The human is still a little bit in the loop, and I think that's a good thing, and I would very much uh, encourage that to be the case for as long as possible. That said, I think it's probably inevitable that as AI gets more and more capable, simply because of competitive pressures and the fact that the other side is going to use it, uh, people will start saying, look, we don't have time for the, the human reaction time is too slow. The human identification of the target is too slow. By the time the human flying the drone makes the target, the enemy's drone that's completely driven by the AI has already taken us out. So we have to go to that level too. And that is very scary to me because it's an escalation and it's violating what I think is our best hope for a good outcome at the end, which is to try to keep the human in the loop as long as possible. That's true for military applications, and it's also true uh, for, for non-military applications where it's learning how to drive a car, um, you know, uh, or it's learning uh, how to behave in an ethical way. So uh, those are some thoughts. I'm not sure I'm answering your question directly, but that's what came to mind immediately. Yeah, no, that's very thoughtful. And yes, we're going to now get a little bit to Boston Dynamics, effectively robots, machine learning, AI, the impact on warfare, the impact on weaponry, on missiles. Uh, it, it's obvious. And actually, so much damage could be done without, quote unquote, nuclear. <laughs> Look at what happened during the shutdowns during COVID. So biological warfare, damaging our water supply, cyber attack, closing down electrical grids. I mentioned earlier, no electricity, no access to banks, if that's the case, no light, quote unquote, at night, lack of supply chains coming in. You have chaos, in my opinion, in three days. So the future of war is going to be more and more fought where it's not necessarily going to be per se, although it's looking pretty bad now with nuclear potential for this year. With nukes per se, it's going to be through devastating countries and through a variety of different ways that even you don't have to be a giant superpower. You just have to be enough of the right smart people who are nefarious, who have access to certain resources, and you could do so much trouble. That is why... I have grave concerns because realistically, there's billions of people. There's a percentage that are really bad. And to think that nothing is ever going to go wrong with this, with technology and AI is just foolish. For those of you that have not seen what me and Craig mentioned, go online and look up Boston Dynamics. So I became familiar with them about two years ago. I attended Art Basel, Miami. And I saw a wonderful artist lady, I'm forgetting her name now, but she had effectively a mechanical dog. That was what Boston Dynamics first came out with. I then invited her, and rightfully so, she's amazing, to one of my events. And she brought this mechanical dog in, controlling it. And I, could, I, I think half my audience was in awe and half of it was scared to death. And now we're seeing they're moving on from, quote unquote, everyone loves a dog, right, to a a humanistic, almost a little bit like the skeleton from Terminator. If you look at that video, it shows the robot helping a factory worker. And it's a little scary. There also have been some videos that have come out 
that have shown uh, more of the, the dog-like robot with effectively a gun system. So is that the future of police? Is that the future of a police state? Is that the future of the military? It is not going to go from here to go backwards. It's going to only advance. I think we have I think those are all, um, yeah, all uh, valid concerns. And it is truly amazing to watch some of those videos, those humanoid robots dancing and doing backflips. Yeah. I mean, they're more acrobatic than I am. Uh, and of course, they have the advantages of being impervious to radiation. And if they happen to step on a landmine, it's not a human life lost and so forth. So there's a lot of forces that will be pushing the development even further. But it's it's quite amazing. And I saw robotics from way back in the 80s when the very early attempts with the robotic arms and so forth. And we've come so far uh, in making it more human-like now. Uh, who is more advanced in AI, the US or China? Okay, that's a great question. So uh, there's some great talks by a guy named Kai-Fu Lee, who has an innovation fund that invests in AI. He was trained in the US, and I think he now uh, is mainly focused on Chinese companies. So he's given some interesting insight on this. Um, so partly based on what he said and also my own observations, I would say that the US has the leading, the very best guys. Uh, male and female, best thinkers, best researchers in AI, the very, very top it uh, is in the US, but the ones that are just a little bit not as good, they trained with the best and then they went back. China has much more of them. So by numbers, China vastly outstrips the US in terms of AI researchers and people studying AI and entry-level folks that can do machine learning. Machine learning is almost a commodity skill now at the basic level. Maybe not developing the next, you know, better algorithm that sort of revolutionizes everything. That might still be with the US, we have an edge. But in terms of doing the vast majority of stuff that's already being done uh, with machine learning, China has the edge in terms of numbers. Yeah, that's pretty much what I've undercovered or uncovered as well. You, like you said, at the highest level, it may be people that are here within the US. A question, how many of those people were born in a different country. That's interesting. I don't know is the is a short answer. Uh, anecdotally, I remember even when I was in grad school in the 80s, there was an active program of bringing uh, the very best uh, Chinese researchers over to Carnegie Mellon. And I was uh, assigned by my advisor or requested to sort of shepherd this uh, brilliant he could think circles around me in terms of mathematics and everything else. A Chinese researcher who was visiting, his English wasn't quite as good. And so make him comfortable and bring him in. And I remember in that particular case, um, uh, he was one of many that were coming. Uh, he did not want to go back to China. He wanted to stay in the US. And so there has been in the past this phenomena where people come to the US, they get trained, they like mm. it here, mm. they would prefer to stay. I don't know uh, whether that has reversed or whether now there's incentives. Uh, certainly Taiwan did a great job of having people come to the US, get trained, and then offering incentives for them to go back. That's how Taiwan Semiconductor got founded, was that way. Uh, That's so right. It's kind of a mix. But the best schools are still here for, for now. For now. And I would say that percentage of people born international is shockingly pretty high. It's about a third. 
yeah. which gets exactly to my point. Don't judge me by what you think is my political perception, because again, it varies depending on specific topics. If we're bringing in amazingly talented people to our universities and they're working here and they're talented, we should not want them to go back. We should be giving them extra incentives, even though that may hurt me a little bit as a taxpayer, but they're so talented and going to be so beneficial to our future, assuming they're not spies. Uh, that we want to make it more attractive to people like they used to in the 80s and 90s that would come here, are hardworking, incredibly talented, and want to stay. So that's kind of the big picture point that I was getting to. Related to what we're talking about, will China's Baidu version, Baidu's version of chat GPT trump open AIs? Uh... I mean, it's an open question. It partly depends on how much resource is poured into that. Now, the Chinese government has made AI a priority, if not the priority. Uh, a lot of the world's leaders have kind of realized uh, what, I hate to use a source like Putin on this, but you know, Putin said, whoever controls AI controls the world, right? I mean, yeah, there's a growing there's growing recognition that there's a lot of um, power and advantage to be gained from AI. And so the Chinese government is actively subsidizing and investing. Uh, if it were to spend a lot more than the US, eventually that might play out where the best talent is going over there. And, um, and then you could have uh, Baidu's version of ChatGPT be better. Is it, is it better now? I, I don't know. And if, if it were, I am not convinced that ChatGPT is the best large language model on the planet. In fact, I'm pretty sure that it's not. It's just the one that most of us are familiar with because it's been made available to us. But DeepMind and Google and other companies uh, likely have as good, if not better, models. They've just been more cautious about them. Hard to say because governments are incredibly bureaucratic, but I'll ask, do you think either the U.S. government or China or another nation state has more powerful internal AI capabilities than even what we're seeing with IBM Watson, Google DeepMind, and others that are more commercial. It is hard to know what's secret. In terms of what's publicly available, I would say the U.S. still has the top AI programs and the top AI models and the top AI researchers. Um, but it's something that could change very easily. And a lot of it does depend on the investment and the resource and the attention that's uh, spent on it. Um, and things in this field, as we've talked about the hockey stick and the pace of technology, things can change very, very quickly. So a competitive advantage, I don't think lasts as long now as it might have 10 or 15 years ago. Let's go back to kind of the big picture societal question and governments are obviously gravely concerned effectively of the future of work. We all know that AI and technology is coming. It's not going to roll back. You believe like I on AI, we're about to see a bit of a hockey stick. We originally thought, well, drivers, blue collar jobs. Yes, of course they will be impacted. Uh, the robot that we saw from Boston Dynamics was basically doing, doing factory work. Uh, White collar jobs, finance, accounting, and law, 100% are going to be impacted. 
And now we're seeing the impact on creative jobs, including artists, not quite yet athletes and dancers, but that's probably inevitable one day as well. So we're seeing so much being impacted. Within two years, I'll give a short window to initially work with. What do you think we'll see as an impact on the future of work two years from now? Well, uh, let me start by sort of sharing how I think about it, I guess. So the way I think about it is what tasks that humans do uh, are easier or harder for AI to do. That's kind of the way I would come to a conclusion on a question like this. And so um, I mentioned earlier, even though we're seeing Boston Dynamics robots are doing all these things, uh, certain things that we would think would be very, very easy, like the act of grasping, turns out even with all the advance in robotics, the act of grasping and not crushing <laughs> and fine motor control, that turns out to be a heck of a problem. And we think we take it for granted, but over years we've evolved to be very good at it. And uh, it's just gonna take AI a little bit longer to do that. Something that we might've thought was highly intellectual and far above simply picking up a, a chopstick, um, you know, analyzing a news report and making a stock trade, that actually might be easier for AI to do. Because yes. it's all digital, right? So, 100%. So, so I think that's the way to think about it is to try to get a sense of what tasks are, you know, harder to do, which are easier to do, and where are we in that domain? Um, in terms of, so that's a general comment. In terms of the specific things, what jobs will be impacted? I think, uh, as we've seen with ChatGPT, a lot of sort of the routine, a, a way to think of it is if it's repetitive, uh, it's intellectual, but it's more or less repetitive. AI is going to do it better. Um, the intellectual part is easy because AI doesn't have to have robot arms and fancy sensors and deal with all those real world physics that turn out to be much harder than you would think. It's Everything is abstract. It's symbols and it's words, and those are easy to manipulate. And then if you're using the same pattern over and over again, I have a friend who's a marketing person and writes press releases, and she's not thrilled with her job. And she says, yeah, I'm doing the same stuff. Well, yeah, AI is going to be able to do that probably as well as she can in terms of producing the words. But then the decisions of when to do what and why you're doing it and setting the goals and those sort of things, that I think will be a little bit farther out. Humans will still be doing that. Editing in, in the sense of, is this saying it the way that I want to say it? The sensitivity to how a human might react to it, that is still a little ways out. The mechanics of writing perfect English without any spelling mistakes and getting the essential facts, we're already there. I mean, I don't know if you folks are aware of this, but half the articles on Yahoo Finance and other places are written by machines already. Um, yes. There's companies that do that. <laughs> you know, we'll just plug into the stock feed and we'll generate an article. You know, Microsoft out did better than the other stocks today. That one was written by a machine. <laughs> I mean, if you're a doctor or in med school, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just me as an amateur looking in. Do you really probably want to be a radiologist? The reality is you're probably not going to be able to keep pace with AI. Now, does someone need to monitor that to be a second set of eyes? Sure, for now. Inevitably, surgery, we're already seeing the impact, is going to be done through robotics and AI. We're going to see the impact of biotech 
going to another level, companies like CRISPR, once AI gets a little better. So now we're going to live longer. That's going to create more challenges potentially globally. I'm not sure if that's going to be the discussion for today. But looking 10 years out, not just white collar professions like legal and finance, but even doctors. I mean, it's so much is going to be impacted. Now, you could put a positive spin and say, we don't have enough people that want to help the elderly. Robotics with AI potential within 10 years may be able to be an amazing home companion. We may be able to have holograms of relatives that have passed, but we have a voice recording and it could duplicate that education. We could have a visual 3D representation of, you know, George Washington giving a speech. I'm not saying there's not some positives and things that could come from it. Like you said, a lot of it's going to come down to from value, character, ethics, governments, who's involved early, how we all play together as a society. It's complicated, which means the more complicated it is, in my opinion, just the more likelihood that there's something that could potentially go wrong. But on to the bigger picture question. In the past, the advancements in industry, mechanical, and technology, yes, there have been people that said, oh, God, we're doomed, and more jobs were created, and in theory, the world got better. It appears different this time, and I know we should always be careful about saying that. Will there be new things that will be created? Probably. Is it going to match for the number of people being displaced? Probably not. And then this creates an issue with society. The top 1% will never win because they won't have the voting power and there'll be chaos. There'll be uh, riots. They won't accept not having food and shelter. So therefore, is it inevitable? You know the direction that I'm going. Whether I like it or not, inevitable that we will likely need to have some form of universal base income. That's an interesting question. And um, a number of people have said, uh, yes, for sure, uh, that's coming. Um, if it does come, <clears throat> I think there will be enough value created by AI and some of these other technologies that we could pay for it easily. So I'm not sure it will be a, um, a big financial drain if that were to happen. Um, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to say. I guess if I had, if you if you did one of those, you must say yes or no. I'd probably say yes to <laughs> the inevitability. But I think uh, you know, with all these things, you mentioned a lot of changes that are happening: radiology and surgery, and and all the different places that AI uh, can sort of contribute and even replace what humans are doing. I think, in some sense, all of those changes are inevitable. The tricky part is knowing the timing of them. Uh, because some things that seem like they would take a long time happen much faster. Some things that uh, <laughs> seem like, wow, that should, we should be where a robot could pick up chopsticks reliably every yeah. time. I mean, that should have been 10 years ago. Come on. But no, I mean, still sometimes the chopstick is dropped or squeezed and it's not quite at the human level. So, uh, so knowing the timing is a little bit tricky. Um, but I think you can kind of reason Let's take one concrete example. Let's take surgery and radiology, since you mentioned both of those. And I'm just reasoning from my intuition and my knowledge here without any specific knowledge of these fields. Radiology is more of an intellectual thing. You get an x-ray 
and it's pattern detection on the x-ray. So it makes sense that that would be um, done by AI sooner than surgery. Surgery is fine motor control. We already know that AI struggles with fine motor control. So you might have you know, AI-assisted surgery, but when it comes right down to it, I'm gonna want the human surgeon who doesn't crush the chopstick to be cutting that very fine thing right up until the AI can do it way better. Or if it's a routine operation where I can, you know, have the, the eye lasers on your eyes and it's done the same way every single time and it's all very precise, okay, maybe the machine can do it that way. But if it's a new one where you don't know what you're going to get when you, and I've talked to some surgeons, they think they know what they're going to find, but they're not 100% sure when they go in there. Sometimes there's something that is a little different and they have to react on the fly and it's not cookie cutter. You probably want the human surgeon there for a little bit longer. The AI radiologist, we're already at the point where AI is better than you know 80% of radiologists. No offense to anyone who's a radiologist there. That's all true. And what you're saying about the surgeons is completely true for now and likely in the relatively foreseeable future. But I will absolutely not put money on that 10 years from now. And that's right. not that far off. Probably closer to five to seven. But, yeah, but it's, it's just a matter of not that far not off. That it, It'll be there in the end game. It's the question of what comes first and what comes second is all I'm saying. Yep. Oh, Craig, I am going to ask you, as I think I got about 10 more really important questions left. Could you give me about another 25 to 30 minutes? What are we doing? Okay, let's go. Let's roll. Yes. This is fun. We're okay. One little comment. I know it's going to be a little self-serving, but again, I do have to run a business. Uh, being a consultant and being the founder of Family Office Association. These are issues that I'm deeply concerned about. What I have is I've been doing this for a long time. Am I specifically that intelligent? Not really, but I am very curious and I'm very connected. And I do know literally the wealthiest and the smartest people in the world and kind of connecting the dots and putting things together, hopefully is something I'm at least halfway good at. So what I'm trying to say is if you're not a member an active member of Family Office Association, go on our website and learn more. Have an opportunity to engage with us as a member. Again, I do specific consulting assignments, and it's an opportunity to be more familiar with what we do to give you an edge. And how much is that edge going to be worth it? I can't really answer that for you. For some, it may be worth practically nothing. For some, it could be worth hundreds of millions of dollars a year. So that's going to be your own perspective. We give a fair amount away for free. Enjoy it and reach out to me. I think I'm a friendly guy and I'm happy to talk to you within reason and be of some sort of assistance. But again, basically join and use me. I know a lot of amazing people. I've seen a lot of things and I think I could help you connect the dots on many different things. Craig, I am going to have to ask you related to my last question about work. I mean, come on, I'm the founder of Family Office Association. If I'm an executive for a multi-billion dollar family, I may be an overriding CEO. I may be a CIO on investments, a CFO on finances, a COO on more office management. I may work with the family on concierge services. Not really right now, but again, that question of two years and 10 years I don't know if I'm in my mid 40s and I'm in the family office industry, just like anyone else, I need to look out to the future. What could I do to enhance my services to the family? How could I become more valuable where I'm irreplaceable? And how could I enhance my skill set? Too many family office executives are, in my opinion, subpar, resting on their laurels and the fact that they're trustworthy, which is very important to the family. 
but they're not necessarily optimal. And now it's going to get harder and harder. So if I mention those fields, leadership, investing, operational, finances, and probably the one that's the hardest to replace, kind of concierge level services to the family, what should effectively a white collar executive that is interested in the family office community or already working in it, what could they do to effectively enhance their job security in the future? Well, I think leadership will always be in demand. Um, I think <laughs> if, if AI start leading things, then that's probably a problem for humans. So I think that for sure, the concierge service, the, the networking uh, with other people, I think all those things are things that I don't see AI sort of making much of a dent in anytime soon. Uh, where AI will have more of an impact is more on the analytical side. So things that maybe a traditional analyst would do, where they bury themselves in a room and they read all the research reports and they try to extract out uh, things, especially if what they're looking at is like earnings and they're doing calculations and things that are relatively repetitive. I think all of that could be done more quickly uh, and more efficiently probably by artificial intelligence, at least as a first pass. And then maybe you have a senior analyst over overseeing that. Operational issues still probably have a lot of um, human elements. Uh, anything that can be done machine to machine, AI is naturally going to probably fit in there first. People to people, where people want to relate to another person, I think that's job security for, for quite a while. Good points. I think we could probably do a separate one-hour discussion, and I could even bring in other experts and even impart more of my opinion on that. I do have strong opinions. They're a little controversial. I basically think as a family office executive looking, not yet, looking probably five to definitely 10 years out, there are lots of problems. And where are you at a point in your career where that's going to put you in a tough spot, perhaps in your 30s, 40s, or 50s? And I believe I could help. Uh, but these are all things that we could have future discussions about. So we do know the family office world is changing. Surgery, legal, accounting. We mentioned hedge fund managers and the rise of quants and computers. Uh, we didn't talk too much in the finance industry about, I guess you could say, financial advisors, even asset managers, any specific opinions or recommendations for them about how AI is going to change things. I think it's already changing things quite a bit there. So there's the rise of robo-advisors, I'm sure you're familiar with. Of course. Uh, to the degree that a financial advisor is doing very standard things like uh, just um, diversification, you know, you should have a, not to be- um, Tax loss harvesting, et cetera. They're not doing as good of a job as a great AI program could, let's be honest. Could do. Right. <laughs> if it's just a matter of 60-40 allocation or even much more- sophisticated allocation, but it's basically portfolio allocation based on numbers. The AI is going to be able to do that really, really well at very low cost. And the fee structure is going to be very difficult. Uh, as people realize that it's already been happening. Um, it's going to be difficult to pay that fee structure for someone when someone says, look, I can have the robo advisor do the same thing that you're doing. So they have to bring some value beyond that. Part of the value is in the personal touch part of the value is in the understanding of really truly the heart of the client and what they want to do i think those kinds of things but just the 
the simple mathematical portfolio allocation, I mean, that can be done very quickly and easily uh, already. Uh, okay, we're going to get on to one of the main areas that I think I want to cover. And hey, some of it's personal. I have a 19-year-old son. I have uh, uh, nieces and nephews in their teens to early 20s. And I have a strong connectivity with that community. In other words, I know lots of people, if not actually probably more than hundreds, thousands that probably fit within the 18 to 25-year-old bracket. So I got a pretty good handle on them. A lot of them are afraid, afraid. I especially notice it among young men. That will be a little bit of a different topic that we're not going to dive deeply into with you, but I will have others on where we will dive into that. What would you broadly have to, what would you recommend? And then we're going to dive deeper. But what would you recommend to a high schooler, a college kid right now about kind of their future, the future of work and how they could prepare? No, I'm not going to accept the answer of follow your bliss and what will be fine because I think that's kind of bullshit. But if you really feel that way, then we could go back and forth on that. <laughs> so I, I do think following your heart is important for quality of life. And, and in some sense, that's a big part of life. Um, but from if we limit the discussion or do we just say, let's focus on the financial aspect, you want to go out, oh. you want to have a be successful, make money, support a family, and um, you know, uh, be able to compete well in the financial uh, area, then I think it is the case that things are changing. I would say the skills that are gonna be increasingly valuable are critical thinking, knowing what is the right question to ask, curiosity, which you have, uh, which I think is much rarer than people acknowledge uh, there's a lot of people kind of going through the motions and just but you know being curious following your curiosity wondering why is it this way questioning um thinking critically about things uh judgment decision making which sometimes comes with experience but there's also uh uh some people that are better at that i think there's things that you can do to become better at that those skills will all be in demand for sure and maybe one way to look at it and not be fearful is to sort of view that AI is an intelligence amplifier. Yes, the AI is out there, but it's going to be amplifying the intelligence of everybody. So it's kind of like everybody is walking around with a, a souped up calculator that's advising them, just like it used to be the case that you would do work and... Um, Using Google made your work easier because you could just put things into Google and you'd find stuff. Now you can use ChatGTP and it will make your work easier. There's still work to be done. You need to redeploy uh, the brain power from you know worrying about spell checking and trying to you know focus on having a grammatically correct, coherent uh, essay to saying what is the right topic that we should be looking at, and um, is this thing more important than that thing? The value judgments. Uh, those kinds of skills, I think, still uh, humans have the edge, and those will be in demand because somebody who's very good, has very good judgment, very good at critical thinking, can leverage that by using the AI and directing the AI to then do a lot more work, and they can be very efficient and much more productive than someone who had to do the work and do the, the critical thinking. Would you say, I guess it's pretty obvious that raw memorization, which I guess you could argue fits under the IQ tab. We could go back and forth on that one too, but rote memorization, knowing the capital of every city in the world, unless it happens to be your career, 
kind of is less and less important. It started to become less important probably 20, 25 years ago. Now with the advent of AI, eventually with this being in glasses and contact lenses embedded in our bodies, like that is going to be less valuable. And this goes back to what you said about curiosity, creativity, critical thinking. And we didn't even really get into just human emotions and interactions, emotional intelligence. Uh, it's putting you on the spot a little bit because I don't think even I have a great answer at the moment. But what would be some fields, endeavors, entrepreneurial businesses to start up with limited resources, not going to the market, getting $10 million, that may be a young entrepreneur graduating college and not having a financial burden yet, unless they have college loans, then they do. What could they do in their discovery about how the world is changing, how they need to adapt? And are there any specific professions or endeavors they could go into and create as an entrepreneur? So this is an area that I'm, uh, the profession I'm about to mention, I'm not very good at myself, but I think sales will be very, uh, very important. <laughs> I was going to mention that. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a talent. Uh, I've seen good salespeople, and I'm always very impressed. The ability to form a rapport and to understand where the client is coming from and uh, to make everybody feel good about a deal that's mutually beneficial. Those things are difficult, I think, for an AI to do. So I could imagine that just as we have, so here's an analogy. I, I don't know how far it goes. Uh, if you leave AI aside, already we had globalization and we had um, people who in other countries for much lower wages could be writing articles and doing intellectual work, and, which is then sold to uh, clients in the US. And so in that scenario, uh, I mean, that happens with offshore contracting and programming. It happens with even writing articles. There was a, when we were looking into this, when I was running one of my companies, uh, we kind of looked at the AI writing the, the article about financial things versus having folks that were in India and other countries writing it who understood English very well and the hourly rate was much lower, which one should we go with, you know? Um, but that business model still required the person in the US who made quite a bit of money, who was finding the clients and selling the research to them. Uh, the actual work was maybe done by an AI or it was done by uh, folks in a different country uh, because that was more efficient and the cost was lower, but the um, you still needed that a uh, person who sort of came up with the idea, the entrepreneurial piece, you needed the sales piece, you needed the customer support piece. When someone really wants to interact and has specific questions that are not routine that could be answered well. So I can see that that sort of thing that we've already seen, that's the reason I mentioned this, without a value judgment, whether it's good or bad, it's just this has happened already where you've outsourced sort of um, low wage kinds of things, but then you still have the component of the business that needs the you know, well-paid and different skill set in the country. That same model could work, but the difference is you have AI doing sort of what used to be done by low-paid workers, which in some sense is good because it enables everybody to move up to the higher-paid job and have all the lower-paid stuff be done by the AI workers. Some people would say, yeah, but there's not enough jobs up there. You know what? There is. I believe in an expanding pie. You're going to create more and more value and 
as long as you're creating more value, there's going to be more opportunity. So I, I'm not really a big fan of the fixed pie view of the world. I think the pie can be expanded and AI can fill in the more mundane, repetitive tasks. I, that's certainly possible. In order to position yourself for that, you have to not specialize in mundane, repetitive tasks. <laughs> don't specify, <laughs> you know, don't specialize in rote memorization. Don't specialize in things that a machine can do. Use your uh, creativity and your decision-making ability, critical thinking, entrepreneurial ability, sales ability, those kinds of things that are much harder for a machine to do. I mean, sadly, there's a lot of young people in the age bracket that I noted where if I could say to them, no worries, it's not going to be glamorous, but you're going to have shelter, you're going to have basic food, you're going to have health care, but the reality is things are changing. We as the government kind of have to bring things internal. We have to take care of you. But you're never going to be, you know, wealthy or great, but you're not going to be poor and starving versus a completely free system where hopefully those that are well off contribute to those that are not as well off through philanthropic initiatives and through education. But I want the opportunity to fail, to be great, to quote unquote, make a lot of money. That's just me. Maybe I'm a hardcore capitalist. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? But unfortunately, in my opinion, if I were to give that scenario to a lot of younger people, in my opinion, especially younger men, they are not really that optimistic about their future and the future. And probably more than half of them will take that safe route, that option one that I described versus the option two. Now, that's a whole different societal, capitalistic uh, perspective that we're going to have more and more conversations on this year. They're controversial and it's okay. There's other opinions other than mine that I want to listen to. I want to learn from and shockingly hard to believe audience. I do occasionally change my mind. My God, I'm actually wrong once in a while. Uh, I'm so happy that you mentioned sales because I've been talking about this in some of the speeches I give at universities digitally and a couple of them in person. That is such an underrated skill. It's not really taught how to be an active listener, how to form proper sentences, how to engage people, emotional intelligence. It is a skill. Some of it are born with more natural capabilities at it. That is true. But it absolutely is a skill and not an incredibly hard one that could be learned and is very, very valuable. Uh, that is probably the number one way for people to do incredibly well financially at the moment. Eventually things will change without necessarily a lot of pure horsepower with their IQ, which again, most people are gonna be average. Uh, I could go on and on about that subject, but the capability of having passion, having goals, having discipline in reaching your goals and the capability of selling in your personal relationships with people, as well as your opportunity to be successful and control your income in your future. For now, things will change. That is definitely something that is underrated and many young people would benefit from learning more about. I would agree with that. I think sales is very much underrated. And it's interesting to note how many uh, CEOs of major companies started out as salespeople and made their way up. You know, it's uh, also a path for advancement if you have that interest. I, I, again, I would say it's you shouldn't just be sales guy if if your heart's not in it. But if your heart's in it, it's it's a great field. I think. Will technologies like CRISPR, biotech in general, be heavily 
in the short term impacted by AI? That's one that um, I think the progress is going to be relatively rapid. And so here's my view on that. So DeepMind, uh, Demis Hassabis, right, owned by Google, uh, but functioning relatively independently, brilliant guy at the top, full of brilliant researchers, started out building AI to play chess and go, and he mastered the two-player game, then it could play any two-player game better than any human. And then uh, to his credit, he said, you know, we figured out some things about how to build AI and how to have it compete against itself to get better. What if we apply this to science and medical science? And he looked around and he said, what is the biggest problem for coming up with new drugs and advancing medical science? And one of the major problems was something called the protein folding problem. Mm -hmm. It turns out that there's all these proteins, uh, and I'm, this is not my area of expertise, but I've learned about it a little bit. There's all these proteins, and in order to make a drug, you need to know not just what the sequence of, of chemical components of the protein are, but what the shape of it is. And it used to take, you know, advanced PhD students, you know, their entire doctoral career, four to six years, and they would figure out the shape of one protein at the end of that. And so progress was sort of slowly moving along six years at a time. And he said, what if we could use these AI techniques that we've developed? And instead of doing, and the reason it took so long was you had to do experiments in the lab and be very careful and one little contamination and you had to redo the experiment. And so it was very laborious. What if we could simulate that instead of actually having to do the experiments, we simulate what it would be like. And then the AI simulates it really, really quickly. Well, this guy was able to take uh, a process that was taking four to six years for one protein. And uh, in 18 months, by the time they were done, they had, they had found the shape of every protein known to humans, <laughs> every protein. <laughs> and these proteins are useful for making drugs. Once you know the shape of the protein, now all of a sudden you can come up with new medicines. So he just did with AI in 18 months, a tremendous leap forward in for the medical sciences. And that was in one area of medical science related. So you mentioned CRISPR. Mm -hmm. In that area where there is a mathematical aspect to it, a sequence of genes, and you're doing gene editing or a sequence of, of chemicals and molecules, and you're uh, trying to figure out the structure, there's math around that. Uh, AI is very good at manipulating patterns. And so for that type of work, it's possible to make great strides forward. Similarly, in medicine right now, there's a lot of silos, right? Some hospital does this, and yes, they publish a research paper every now and then, but they don't necessarily, aren't able to absorb all that research from all of the different medical uh, universities and put it together uh, and see if there's patterns across the research. And AI is great at doing that. I mean, just load it all in and it looks for the common patterns and it says, have you thought about this? Because so-and-so said this and so-and-so said that. And they seem to be saying the same thing. And somebody said, oh, wow, you know, that used to take 10 years. These guys would have to randomly bump into each other at a conference or something. <laughs> and you might get that happy synergy. Uh, but now the machine can sort of analyze all that data and find those patterns. So, yeah, I'm very optimistic that you and I and the audience will all most likely live longer. Uh, as a result of advances in medical science that are in large part due to AI.
Uh, I can't go a multi-hour podcast and not ask one or two questions directly, indirectly related to crypto and Bitcoin, but we did touch on Web3 a little bit before. Uh, But I have gotten some of my maximalist and friends in the Bitcoin community like, hey, you have an expert on AI, and I know this may not be your core focus, but do you have an opinion about if something like factoring algorithms, I know I'm getting a little nerdy to the audience, we'll move on it pretty quick, I promise. If factoring algorithms in theory could crack Bitcoin, effectively the keys. So again, not my main area of expertise. I know enough to be dangerous. Uh, modern cryptography, RSA cryptography, for example, is based on the fact that it's very difficult uh, to factor prime numbers. So if you take two prime numbers and you multiply them together, uh, the only way to get that number, that result is to, if you factor it, is to know what those two prime numbers are. And it's very difficult mathematically to uh, break that code based on prime numbers. And that's the basis of securing your bank transactions and everything else uh, that we use when we use cryptography uh, or RSA security or other forms of security. It's based on the fact that this mathematical weirdness that multiplying primes, it's it's hard, very difficult to figure out what those primes are. And that enables you to make codes that are hard to break. A computer could brute force it. It could try every possible number to see, is this the right number? No, let's try another one. Is this the right one? And, you know, it's doing millions or billions of numbers per second. So kind of like trying all possibilities on combination lock. There are so many possibilities with this um, cryptography based on prime numbers that they say, yeah, the computer could break it, but it would take, you know, 10,000 years or something. So we feel that's good enough. <laughs> and then some. Up, and then some. But if, if someone were to come up with a new way of computing that could somehow solve that prime factoring problem much more quickly. Well, quantum. Then quantum. And you, you're reading my mind. The only one that I'm aware of that theoretically can do that is quantum computing because it can do many calculations in parallel. So it's like trying all the combinations on the lock all at once instead of having to do them one at a time. That could allow something that they thought would take 10,000 years to be broken to be broken in 10 minutes or something like that. And now all of a sudden we have a problem. The research that I've done, which is admittedly limited on quantum computing, is we're five to 10 years out before that is a real problem. Um, And people say when that becomes a real problem, by then the uh, security algorithms will have been changed and updated to account for it. And so I don't think there's any reason to be panicked that my Bitcoin is going to be hacked. Uh, But it is something to watch to see what is the evolution of quantum computing and has the Bitcoin and the crypto community kept up with improving the security. Right now, I think it's okay, but theoretically in the future, that is something to watch. Uh, any specific opinion, quasi-related question on Shor's algorithm? So Shor's algorithm, I don't know a lot about other than it's related to uh, factoring um, prime numbers. And so if somebody were to come up I think it's a little bit of a long shot. If somebody were to come up with a new type of algorithm that's different than that, that was much more efficient, then that potentially could be a risk. Um, That's a very specialized field. So I'm sure there's some mathematicians working on it, but as far as I know, nobody's uh, come up with better algorithms really uh, that are much more efficient than that. So uh, I think it's really where we are right now. It's a matter of the computing power itself 
Um, but really, at a high level, there's two pieces. Either you get a super fast computer like quantum that uses your existing algorithm, and that's how you break it. Or you have your same computer that goes a little bit slower, but you found out a smarter algorithm where it can just break it faster using this algorithm, and that's a way to break it. So Shor's algorithm would be in that second category. That's the current algorithm that we know, but currently it takes too long with the amount of computing power that we have uh, for you to be worried about your Bitcoin. Uh, Craig, do you really believe that there's one person who's Satoshi, or likely it's a group of incredibly talented people? Arguably, we could go a little back and forth here on former government quote-unquote agencies that may have had a little bit of a hand, SHA-256 in the mid-90s, etc. Uh, I know I'm putting you into a little bit of a conspiracy bucket, for lack of a better word, but I think generally when I talk to people like you, they really don't believe it was just one person. You know, this is something I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, I guess I, on questions like this, I try to say, well, what is the ramifications if it was one person versus a group? You know, is there a big difference? So maybe, um, I guess there's some conspiracy angles if it was a group of people. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I've read some of the popular stories that you've probably seen, and, and maybe your audience knows better than I, where somebody claims that I was the Satoshi, and then they track it down, and it turns out that, no, that wasn't true. <laughs> um, so I, I don't have a strong opinion on that. Do you... Do you think it matters one way or the other like if it was a group rather than one what are the implications there it's a complicated answer uh no <laughs> one has has broke yet the original block has never been moved we could go into a whole bunch of opinions on how finney and others maybe we'll save that for a bitcoin roundtable i kind of promised my audience i wouldn't go too crazy on the web3 and bitcoin front but I did have some of my members that wanted me to do a little bit of a dive, given that I was having you on. I think my last question, then we'll go to a close, and it's not without some controversy. Uh, <laughs> I, again, I try to be a creative and different thinker. I probably push the boundaries a little bit, and I don't mean to offend anyone, but I just want to be realistic to what I think when I hear about all that's going on in the metaverse, in the virtual world, in AI, in the challenges we're having with especially the younger crowd with interpersonal dynamics, communication, and getting together, the reality, and this was a little bit of a feature in the movie AI, if you remember, with a Judd's character. Effectively, I'll just come out and say it, the future of sex and how that is going to be impacted in a variety of different ways with AI. So I'm giving you a loaded question, and you could go in several different directions. It's all yours. Well, I guess the I'll just go where my mind goes first on this. Which, uh, <laughs> being an AI nerd guy is probably a nerdy direction. Um, when we think about, again, going back to our earlier discussion of what is easier and harder for AI to do, We've said that fine motor skills are a little bit harder for AI than some of the analytical things. So I think AI will probably be better at writing a sexy, racy novel or a penthouse forum contribution or something uh, than it would be at right now at actually having sex with a person because, I mean, the motor control just isn't there. That's a very nerdy sort of take on that uh, subject. Um, 
But do you think within 20 years, we'll effectively have a print on demand who we deem to be from either sexual perspective, the perfect ideal mate? And I don't know, that comes and goes in one hour, one day, one week. Uh, what that does to human reproductivity, if I use the right word there, the future of population, the future of interpersonal dynamics. So this is actually a serious question. It was originally meant with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek perspective, because I want to push the boundaries a little bit, but there actually is a legitimate perspective behind it. Well, and in some ways, it's related to something you mentioned earlier about you have older people and maybe AI robots will be caring for them and interacting for them and providing nurturing and social interaction and that sort of thing. So sort of a, a not to change your question too much, but to reformulate it a little bit, uh, there's a more general point of social interaction. Uh, right now, it's human to human, empathy, emotion. Uh, this is These are very human things. Will it be the case in the future that some of those things can be taken over by a robot and it can be programmed to the degree that we feel interacting, maybe we prefer interacting uh, with the Android than we do with our partner because it you know, has been programmed to be nicer to us or whatever. Um, you know, I can yes. see that- this is what I'm getting at. That's possible. It never ages. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, you know, that's possible. That's an interesting world. Um, it's probably something to watch very carefully, uh, especially when you realize that some of the tech innovations, <clears throat> much more than people are willing to admit, were actually driven by sex. If you think about Yahoo in the early days, it was about, you know, finding, you know, information uh, and sexual information Craigslist. A lot of the sites that sort of grew and got their traffic initially was sexually related, and then they gradually morphed to other areas. So it's a basic human drive. And uh, I am absolutely sure that because AI is advancing, uh, this area of human experience will not be left out. But how it ends up, if it will be like in the movie AI or not, uh, I'm not sure. I think it's a little ways off, probably. Um, and not if in you're the unsure next five years. <laughs> of what we're referencing, by the way, you should go and watch the movie AI. This is a little tiny part of it, by the way, but an interesting part. Wow, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, originally, it was going to be a one-hour interview, then an hour and 15 minutes, then an hour and a half, then two hours, and impromptu, it ended up being two and a half hours. And I still left questions on the floor for next time. Wow. <laughs> but that being said... Craig, tell us a little bit of how people could become familiar with your work, your YouTube channel. Do you have a Twitter? And maybe they want to hire you as a consultant. How could they reach out to you? So I think in terms of educational uh, information about AI, uh, I have a YouTube channel, IQ Studios One, and I have a website, iqstudios.org. So those are the places where my videos live. Uh, for consulting work, I have a company called IQ Company that I've had for many years, since 1993. And the website there is iqco.com. So those are the, the main places. Uh, and I guess if I can just leave one parting thought, I, I'm very optimistic that we collectively have the ability to have a very positive future with AI. Like it could be a really, really good thing. Um, so I would just encourage everybody to become as educated about the topic as they can, because I think what we do in the next five, 10 years 
is going to have an outsized impact on what the future is for everybody. Um, and I do think that how we behave online and um, the way that we live our lives more than ever before in the past is important, not just because it's great to live life in a positive way, but because we are role modeling for these AIs of the future. And that's something that I think is not quite appreciated as much as it will be five years from now. And although you did give several websites or a YouTube platform, for those that want to just directly email you, would you mind giving out your email address? Sure. You can do IQ info. So IQ and then info at IQCO.com. So IQCO, IQ Company is the domain name and then just IQ info. And are you active on Twitter? Uh, I am going to be more active. I have a Twitter account, but uh, I have a marketing person who's telling me I need to start tweeting more. So stay tuned on that. I will start <laughs> tweeting and you'll be one of the first people I, I follow. And, I uh, follow you and I want to learn so much more. On that note, I'll give a very brief close. This has been long enough, and I appreciate all of you for either watching or viewing in our live audience and those that will either watch this on YouTube or hear it on you know, iHeart, Apple, Spotify. I'm Angelo Robles. I'm the host of the Angelo Robles Podcast. I'm the founder of Family Office Association, a global membership organization dedicated to among the world's wealthiest and most successful families. Like, wow, this has been uh, a really deep, deep dive interview. Yes, I know I've been a little bit more quiet lately. I hope to be more active, but it's more about quality than quantity. Uh, I know many of you haven't seen me in a while. And yeah, I do occasionally wear suits and ties and really enjoying it. And I hope to be more active with you both digitally and all my platforms from Instagram, the LinkedIn, the Twitter, and obviously YouTube, where many of you are actively you're watching this now and you can feel free to reach out to me anytime i'm a student i'm far from a master i want to learn and i'm very interested in economics macro investing family offices geopolitics military ai technology uh again i'm about as far away from an expert well maybe on family offices uh but for me it's that perspective of being curious being curious asking questions uh, to me, that's very, very important. Uh, so I do take pride in the work that I put in to the depth of my questions, the length of our interviews. I hope we not, we're not your everyday family office organization. We're not the biggest, by far and away, not the most profitable. But hopefully, especially if you work with me one-on-one, -on -one, probably the deepest thinking. Uh, so we hope to be active with many of you for a long time to come. But if not, enjoy the free material that I give away uh, on things like YouTube and others. And again, I hope to learn from all of you as well. You could follow me at, at Family Office on Twitter, uh, effectively on Family Office, at Family Office on YouTube. But either way, put my name in. You'll find me. Subscribe. It's free. You get benefits from it. And our core website is familyofficeassociation.com still works, but we transitioned a bit more to familyofficeassociation.us. Don't be misled by that. Uh, I am more active than ever internationally, travel internationally, and really look at uh, as being really a, a global citizen relative to the work, especially I do on disaster prep for billionaires uh, or those that want to be, which is everyone, right? Well, as I said earlier, not necessarily everyone, but that's okay. There's room for all sorts of people. So we are very, very busy. We're very active this year. 
uh, engage with us, be a part of it. I thank you all for your time. Craig, you've been a great guest. I appreciate it. The live audience, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And those that watch or listen, I greatly appreciate it. Go and subscribe to our platform so you don't miss out on any of our content. Thank you so much. And Craig, again, thank you for being a great guest today. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Angelo. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Angelo Robles podcast. For more insights, visit FamilyOfficeAssociation.com for masterclasses, programs, and to get your copy of Effective Family Office, Best Practices and Beyond by Angelo Robles today.